Clinical lycanthropy is a rare phenomenon usually associated with schizophrenia. Jeremy's claims of being a werewolf were never so severe as to require clinical care. They were simply part of his invented, attention-seeking internet persona and probably sprang from his interest in industrial and death metal music. He once posted a poem on a website containing lines that reflected his werewolf fantasies. You're the light when it's dark. You're the moon when I bark. It says dirtbags in the title. We can do what we want. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Мы открылись миру, открылись, отказались от вмешательства в чужие дела, от использования войск за пределами страны. И нам ответили доверием, солидарностью и уважением. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. I make the money, man. I roll the nickels. The game's mine. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Enlightened Dirtbags podcast. And today we have a real roller coaster for you. Jonah, how about you tell us a little bit about today's book? Today's book was published in 2009 and written by Robert Remington and Sherry Zikafus, a couple of journalists from uh, Alberta, Canada. And they wrote a book called Runaway Devil, How Forbidden Love Drove a 12-Year-Old to Murder Her Family. Like we spoke about at the end of our last episode, this book is close to home for both version two and I because uh, the, the real life, the true events of this book took place in Medicine Hat, Alberta in 2006. Jeremy Steinke, 22 years old at the time, and his 12-year-old girlfriend, Jasmine Richardson, murdered Jasmine's family in Medicine Hat, Mark and Deborah, and Jasmine's eight-year-old brother, Jacob. Yeah, this was a real dark story, and I would have been 16 at the time. I was actually only three years older than Jasmine. It hits home in a lot of ways, right? Like, not just proximity, but uh, growing up in the same time frame. There's a lot of themes in this book that are very, very familiar. You know, we see the parents' concern with social media, especially pages like Nexopia, and then Vampire Freaks came up around that time. You know, the... <clears throat> the dark themes in the music that they listen to. I grew up in a very similar scene, right? I listened to a lot of the same bands. I think we all had an exopia that concerned our parents when we were this age, you know? And so it's not it's not just how close it is, but it's, for someone our age, it's going to feel very familiar in kind of a spooky way. And I think had we lived and grew up in Medicine Hat there was a very good probability that we would have been friends with a lot of the same people that are mentioned in this book because of, like you said, the social media use uh, that we were very familiar with, the music, the the local shows that we used to go to, right? That's part of the reason. It's not like we're reading about a different group of kids in a different time. We're very much reading about people who could very well have been our peers had circumstances been different. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of talk about the things that kids say. 
uh, you know, in their early to mid teens. And we've all heard it. Kids that hate their parents, they'll say things that they for sure don't mean. In this case, it happened to escalate, but it just makes you reflect a lot on the people you knew, the things you heard them say. And, you know, like if I had heard them talking about doing something like this, would I have believed them or not? And I mean, you, you in hindsight, it's it's a lot easier to go, oh, well, how come, you know, nobody did anything? How come nobody told the cops? And it's like, you know, at 13, 14 years old, you're not really thinking about that. You know, you're not thinking about going to the cops over something your friends said. Everything's almost make-believe still at that age, right? And this book really brings up a lot of moral dilemmas as well during the murders themselves and everything leading up to it. And then especially with the court case, we dive into that a lot um, in today's conversation. And it, I've, I've still been thinking about it. It's been two days now since we did our uh, interview in this portion. And I just can't, there's so many topics that I can't wrap my head around and two particular moments in this book that I don't, I don't really want to discuss specifically on here, but two particular moments that have just kind of been almost haunting me in a way, you know? This is not a book that you read it, oh, these people are fucked, and then you put it on the bookshelf. I, like you said just a few moments ago, there isn't an easy answer and there isn't an easy explanation to anything that unfolds in Runaway Devil. I would imagine it was hard to write as well because there's some really sensitive topics, right? And you, you kind of have to just lay out the facts. You know, you can't put any opinion into this without walking a dangerously fine line, you know, without sounding like you're justifying something or leaning to one side or the other. You know, it's you really just kind of have to lay it out, which I think they did quite well. I would imagine writing this was uh, tremendously nerve-wracking. We're taking a different approach to this episode because we've interviewed someone who has a very close connection to the events that unfolded in this book. Now, neither myself or version two knew how close of a connection this person had to the events written about in Runaway Devil. Yeah, so this is a friend of the podcast, Mitch. Um, we had discussed doing this book on an episode of his podcast as well. That's kind of how all this came to be. And as you'll hear in the interview, of course, he says that it's kind of his first time talking about it publicly. Obviously, it's something that would have consumed a large portion of his life with considering everyone's age at that time and just the, the scale of this whole situation. It's something that I could never imagine being a part of now, let alone at that age. It would have been so overwhelming. So it was interesting, and he he's also read the book himself, so he had some thoughts in the book that we kind of discussed and bounced around, and then we get into quite a wild story that it's just up and down, you know? Like, there's some dark parts, obviously, surrounding the murder and, and what it was like as a kid at that age. And then it gets actually surprisingly comical towards the end. You know, it's so don't go into this thinking that this is just going to be dark and it's going to wreck your day. There's going to be a bit of that, but uh, there's some good entertainment in here as well. And Mitch was a great sport with it. I'm sure it wasn't easy to talk about. You know, this is something that he's probably been processing his whole life, you know. And so before we cut to our conversation with Mitch, I don't know if we've said it enough, but I'm going to say it again. Like there's some dark shit. There's some dark themes that we talk about. And both of us are still processing the conversation that we had with Mitch. It was probably one of the most challenging podcasts that I've ever had to record with somebody else 
just because of the content of the podcast and the impacts that it left on me. So if this stuff's going to freak you out, we understand if you just want to hit pause and go to the next episode, because once we get talking with Mitch, like it gets heavy really quick. So without further ado, this is uh, our interview with Mitch and his shockingly close inside look at all of this and how it came about on its way to the murders and how things have played out since. So buckle up and enjoy the ride. This story is completely fucked. And I think that's the most concise way and I think the most clear way, the the clearest idea in my head of like how I could summarize Runaway Devil, that story of the three murders in Medicine Hat, it's fucked. It's completely fucked and this story rattled me. Yeah. One, 100%. You know, you're talking about one of the youngest convictions of familicide in the world and the youngest triple homicide ever in Canada. This story is close to home, one, because it's in Medicine Hat, Alberta, and that's, that's within driving distance, right? Like, this is not a faraway place. This is a place that we're like, hey, if we wanted to go to Medicine Hat, like, later today, we could go to Medicine Hat later today. Like, this is within our means to go and visit that place. I had family that lived in the area, right? But not only that, this era, like we lived this era. Some of the people, most of the people that are mentioned and their ages and their interests and their likes and their hobbies and their moods, just who these people were, like it reminded me of people that I know. Like I don't know murderers, not that I know of, right? But I really resonated with, I guess, the characters and the people in the story. Like this is a true story. I shouldn't call them characters. It, like I resonate, resonated with these people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like you said, with the age group, uh, Jasmine Richardson is three years younger than I am. Like, it's it's very similar. And uh, in high school, you know, I kind of came up in the goth community, got into it around the same age, 13, 14 years old. And it's all, a lot of the themes are very familiar. And uh, we'll dive into that a little bit more here uh, in the next little bit. But today we have our first special guest, pretty excited about it's Kind of unfortunate it's on such a dark theme, but uh, it's going to be really interesting. I think it's going to add a lot. So we've got Mitch here today. Mitch, thanks for coming along. Yeah, thanks for letting me be on you guys' podcast. It's an honor. So um, you've kind of got a close tie to this story. Yeah, without being involved, it's about as close as it gets. Yeah, just uh, a PSA here. Mitch didn't kill anybody. No. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as as the Crown Prosecutor in both trials called it, I was the key witness to the events leading up to and after. Holy fuck. The key witness to. Um, the reason there isn't more in the book, as people might read, I'm I'm called Mick in the book. It's nicknamed because my mom would not let me talk to these people when they were writing the book. Dude, so the whole time I read this book, I was like, which one of these characters is yeah, Mitch? Yeah. Oh, you're blowing my mind, man. <laughs> so, yeah. So both on both trials, I was called as the key witness to the events leading to up directly to and after. Can you even talk about this? Yes. Okay. Yes. I've, after the second trial wrapped up, I was able, I, I asked because I was unsure. And it was mostly my parents were like, in case you go around talking to somebody and you say something you shouldn't, maybe make sure. And at the end of Jeremy's trial, I asked the Crown, I was like, what am I allowed to say? And they said, anything that's been told to us, you're allowed to go out and say the stuff that we aren't divulging to the public right away is the actual scene. 
So like what I saw right after has been quoted in newspapers and stuff. So everything I've stood on trial and vouched for and that's been confirmed, I'm allowed to speak fairly open about. There may be something you ask me and I might, eh, but pretty much 100% of it. There's a few things I'm not supposed to divulge that they didn't let into newspapers that I happened to come across in my questioning, but that was about it. Okay, well, if there's something here that comes up, you can just like tell us straight away. Hey, I'm not really going to speak to that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> I I'll didn't realize. Say... Oh, man, so when version two said that you were connected to this story, same thing, like he was saying just earlier, like I was, when I was reading the book, I was wondering, I'm like, oh, like, where does, where's Mitch in this yeah. book, right? I didn't realize that you were like, a key witness. Oh, yes. Well, Man, I'm feeling self-conscious. I kind of wanted to prepare more now. I didn't, <laughs> I'm not a key anything. Yeah, and, to, and to be honest, I didn't tell... I just told Dylan I was very closely related to the story. I, I wanted him to read the book without yeah. having a lot of information from me as well. So I didn't even really tell him well that's the cool thing is like yeah when you said that because i had no idea i thought it might have been like yeah we hung out a couple times or who knows what right and so yeah, yeah when you said now, that i'm like I oh shit what my direct involvement whoa. was. yeah yeah whoa yeah so for anybody that doesn't know actually this came up in an episode of mitch's podcast back on our bullshit that i was on we t we were talking about the upcoming season and our topic and he recommended a book and was like oh yeah i don't know if you have time for it on this on the podcast or not but you could read this separately or whatever and he kind of touched on it like he just said uh didn't really divulge too much information just said he had a connection to it and told me the story and i was like oh i'm gonna text jonah as soon as we stop recording and yeah clearly it uh paid off because this is fucking wild just to rewind to that moment when i got the text message from version two i was game on for any changes or in our reading list for for the podcast but when he mentioned a guest Admittedly, I had a little bit of anxiety, one, because I recently got diagnosed with like generalized anxiety, but because I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure about integrating a guest into a book review because I had a lot of worries about how much you were bringing to the table, right? Mm -hmm, of course. But now that you say that you're a key witness, like I just, I'm like almost speechless because <laughs> you are going to know way more about any of this. Yes. And version two and I have just read the book. You know? <laughs> well, and it's really interesting because you'd think on a book podcast, you're going to have on like an author. And in this case, uh, your perspective is obviously significantly more important than the author's. Like, yes. The author I, just knows the story as we know it. Yes. And I would say the authors like just off the hop, they did a really good job of trying not to portray too much of anything that didn't need to be like in the golf goth culture they did a good job of explaining how these kids would be without bashing what that was because you could tell that they didn't have a full understanding like of course we grew up in that sort of time and you could tell they were an outsider looking in on it but they did a very good job of explaining what those kids kind of were without making them seem all like monsters they did a good job of explaining that Jeremy was kind of an offset of what that culture was without saying all of these kids might have had these thoughts or were dangerous people. It was a bad seed out of a relatively calm, respective group of kids, I would say. And as for the trial and what they talk about in 
the events that happened, they were they were very on par. They didn't exaggerate things. They kept it very what it was, I believe. And I, I felt like there wasn't a lot of opinion also. Like, it's something that you could really lean into your opinion. Of course, it's pretty easy to tell which way that opinion would go. Yeah. But there could have been, like, a lot of judgment and whatever. There was a little bit of personal feeling in a couple spots. But for the most part, they told you the story, yeah. you know. And like Mitch was saying, I think they did a really good job of laying out everyone's backstory. Like, of course, not to justify anything, but as we saw with Jeremy, like... You know, we had the other goth kids in the scene, some of them just doing it out of rebelliousness, some of it doing because of their love for the music. But you see it a lot in Jeremy's backstory and especially the difference between him and JR's backstory. You know, like JR came from a loving family. Parents had some troubles when they were younger. But from what everyone says in the community, you know, they were very respectable people. You know, like Mark was a hard worker. Everyone at work loved him. He, all of his stories, he's always making everyone laugh. And uh, Deborah was actually like a sponsor and volunteer for Narcotics Anonymous, right? So like having gone through the recovery program themselves. So they, it sounded to me, of course, all we know is what we read in the book, but it sounded to me like they were pretty reasonable parents. They tried to keep their punishments minimal and and related to what had happened. And then in Jeremy's backstory, you see the troubles that he's gone through, you know, like alcoholism and, and abusiveness in his family through like his father, his mother, his stepfathers or the boyfriends or whatever. So you get to see kind of why Jeremy stands out a little bit from the rest of the goth kids. Like there's troubles that had brewed long before this scene came into play. And Mitch and I had a really good conversation actually just the other day about how difficult it would have been to write this book and dive into the details of the goth community, you know, with the age discrepancies there, you know, like without trying, without making it sound like you're almost justifying or saying it's okay. Cause like you're talking about Jeremy was what, 23 and JR was 12 or 13, right around like the birthday range there. And so you kind of just have to lay it out as it is. And you can't, be like, oh, well, in the goth community, this was normal. Because it kind of sounds like you're justifying a 23-year-old sleeping with a 12-year-old. It would have been a very fine line to walk. And I think they did a pretty good job of just laying out the details and keeping opinion out of it and not taking any risk, but still giving us pretty much what we needed to know. And I, almost even a little bit more sometimes. Uh, definitely more <laughs> than maybe the general public would have needed to know. Yeah. Point. I read this book in like two and a half days it grabbed me and i just my my girlfriend called me a little book goblin because i just <laughs> i was just sucked into this story right and i read reread most of the book here recently i think uh i haven't reread the last couple of chapters but i reviewed some of my annotations that i made uh the first time through uh, but what i wanted to say is reading this a second time and already knowing what happened and how everything played out I still, as my first reading, same with the second reading, I found that I felt bad for Jeremy. That that was something that reading the story, and I I don't know if it was something that the authors did to make me feel that, or if it if if that's just how I naturally feel to it. So that's something that I kind of want to throw your way because you knew these people, but that's one thing I don't feel bad for jr and what happened to her i feel terrible obviously for the family that got murdered but jeremy like 
because you get so much of that backstory. And I don't want to give him a pass. That motherfucker needs to stay in jail. That's my opinion on it. I but I, but I fucking felt bad for that guy. I like reading it. I was like, man, and you just get the sense from the quotes and the paraphrases that the authors are using to frame the character of Jeremy in this book. And I was like, man, like I just, I can't, he, he, to me, like I, hero is too strong of a word because there's definitely no heroes in the story. But as far as like a protagonist, I it seemed to me that he kind of stole the show a little bit, right? Oh, definitely. I would say, um, I will say right from the get go, like after the fact, like after we knew what had happened, like us as the group of kids, um, from the the early details we were getting because they talked pretty quick. And the cops in Medicine Hat, to be honest, were not very tight-lipped with what they were telling each other through the notes and everything they were passing. And there were so many kids that were just over 18 that weren't on his, like, no-visit list that were actually talking to him. So a lot of information was coming back right away to the kids. And we were getting a lot of information. And kids all the way from, like, 12, Jasmine's age, to, like, 24, all of us kind of had that same feeling. Like as the evidence, and then as we were getting told by police officers and detectives, the messages that they were pulling and that they were showing us, I don't know if that's proper police practice. We were all really young. I don't know, but they were showing us this stuff. And like, as we were, as these kids were going and talking to detectives and coming back and sharing their information, which we weren't supposed to do, we weren't supposed, but we're, we're like 13 to 16 year old kids. And this is a traumatic thing happening only to us. And we were sharing this information and we, it just always came down and I'm not defending Jeremy. I feel like he, you're, you're an adult. You could have stopped yourself at any point, but so all of us could have stopped him too, probably. But i as the information came out, we all started feeling like removed from the situation and removed from Jeremy now being able to talk to us or anything. We were being delivered information of him being p potentially FAS and having these disorders that, you mean uh, fetal alcohol syndrome? Yes. Or yeah. Yes, and I don't. I don't know if any of that ever came out medically is what he was, but I know a lot of stuff got looked into. I think they said that it was never an official diagnosis because the mother hadn't admitted to drinking during the pregnancy. Yes, but she so, was known to be an alcoholic yeah, during that was, time and everything. It was so. expected, but yeah. they couldn't make it an official diagnosis without her admittance. Yeah, and I don't think she ever probably would have. Yeah, especially at that age, but. It just always boiled down to like the what she was saying to him always seemed like this demanding this or not me. And the messages that I was able to read that they showed me didn't show that same manipulation back to her, like him saying, we need to kill your parents. It always started with her saying she wanted to kill her parents and him going, ha ha ha, we need a plan or whatever. Doesn't make him okay. But it did seem to give all of the kids involved kind of that sympathy for him as that information rolled out. And as we all started sharing what we knew, it seemed like somehow, and in my head at the time being 15, 16, I was just turning 16. I, even in my head, I was like, how does some girl, I, some girl couldn't convince me to go and kill her family, even if I hated them. But how does this happen to someone that I looked at as older than me? I was like, if I'm bipolar and I know I shouldn't do that, take all the drugs, all the substances, all the abuse out, something had to be wrong with someone older than me 
to be convinced by someone younger than me to kill someone. So like all of us started connecting those dots and becoming, having the same feeling you had as you read the book. So that was not just the author portraying it. That was how it, that was the wave that came out, at least to the kids. I know my mom was like, he's a pedophile. He's a murderer. Not untrue. <laughs> you know, not untrue. Not untrue. Not untrue. All yeah. of that was true. I but you know, right. <laughs> you know, like I had to be about a year removed before I started looking at it that way. But I was also a kid and didn't, I was going through my own trauma, right? I didn't really think about what the fuck he did wrong. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, but this would be, yeah, like that's the thing. This would be unimaginable. Like how old were you when these events played out? I, I, it was in April of my, I was, uh, would have been 15. And I turn and my birthday's in May, so I was just turning sixteen. Um, it's almost a year to the day of the murders yeah. back in two thousand and six. Yeah. Yes, it was uh, April twenty third. Yeah. yeah I was so say, it's right around where we are now. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting you brought up that dynamic actually because <clears throat> I had quite a struggle with this book, you know, just because of the similarities in the age group and, like I said, coming up in the goth community. Like I knew a lot of people like these two. You know, you saw it a lot. As we discussed before the podcast, there was always a ton of diversity in ages in that group. Like, I for sure knew guys like Jeremy that were older, that were, you know, maybe a little immature for their age. And so they kind of fit in with these younger kids. And then they got, just like with Jeremy, you kind of get this clout that comes with having a car and being able to buy alcohol. And so you kind of feel like a bit of a rock star, you know, and they're really cool to these younger kids, whereas people in their age group, especially for Jeremy being a little immature. And when we take into consideration the um, possible FAS, you know, like he didn't fit in in his group and then he felt very special in this other group, you know. And so I struggled with this book just having such a connection to it, even like I had some of the same Cradle of Filth lyrics posted on my Nexopia as she did, you know, they talk about, um, that's rough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I look back, I'm like, Oh, no wonder my parents worried about me. <laughs> They're probably worried about themselves. Um, wondering who your girlfriend is. Yeah. Well, we had a long conversation about <laughs> yes. the one on the way up here who was questionable at best. Anyways, well, let's move past that. Um, and even like they talk in one part of the book about uh, the Cradle of Filth lyrics that talk about the lady that would bathe in a bathtub of blood to stay young. And I legitimately had a back patch of that safety pin to one of my hoodies and I wore it to school. Just this naked woman in a bathtub of blood. And I got in so much trouble for it. <laughs> so it's like all of this is so familiar. Like I for sure, like the book says, kids all the time, they talk about like, oh, I wish my parents were dead or I hate my parents or whatever. 100% they don't. But you're not old enough to understand the value that your parents provide to you with life lessons and shelter and paying the bills because you don't fucking have those responsibilities yet. So when they do something small, I mean, taking away cell phones wasn't really a thing for us yet. I didn't have one until I was 18. But, you know, taking away the fucking Nintendo or whatever it is, not letting you go out to see your friends on the weekend, stuff like that, forcing you to do your homework, all that stuff felt like the end of the world. And you're so emotional at that age, right? So I had a hard time with this book and... When I was about halfway through it, before I got to the trial portion, I was like, I might throw this fucking book in the fire as soon as we're done. I've read a lot of, you know, uh, concentration camps in World War II, D-Day, stuff like that. Stuff that's really hard to read, but it feels so separated, even though historically it's not that far from us. It feels almost like a fantasy world that you can't, it's hard to even connect to, whereas this was so familiar. And I hadn't reached a point where there was anything that really made me think aside from just kind of feeling grossed out, 
you know, and feeling bad for the family. Obviously, you have this phenomenal story of recovery and these two being becoming good parents. And then once I had gotten to the trial, that's where it, it really hit me. Like I really started diving into some more like philosophical ideas and I decided to keep the book at that point because when I went into it, I was like, oh, this is going to be a book of like an older dude manipulating a young girl into doing something terrible. And when you get to the trial and more details start coming out, you're like, that's, again, I can't say, but it sounds like you kind of verified it. It really sounds like it went the other way. You know, you had an older guy that didn't fit in in his own world and he seemed immature for his age and then she seemed very mature for her age. And so it's almost like she took the wheel and played him. And so it's like, but then you come into this kind of psychological battle where you're like, you see the role she played and you're like, well, does that kind of makes her more responsible, but you're also like, she's fucking 12, dude. How do we hold someone responsible for that? And a triple homicide, like immediately like knee jerk reaction. Most of us are like jail forever or like bullets cheap, you know, like (laughs) save the fucking tax dollars. But when someone is 12, the science is shown, like you're so far from fully developed, your sense of responsibility, your sense of remorse, all of that, how you perceive the world is so different from an adult. Like you can't really hold that person responsible for the rest of eternity. And how as a society do we take into consideration the roles they each played? And then how do we move that forward? And because either they rot in jail forever, which is a waste of fucking money, Or you have to eventually, especially for her at 12, you have to eventually bring her back in society. Mm -hmm. And how do you transition someone who's done something so terrible back into the world and, you know, assure everyone else that this is a safe bet and that they're able to become, or do we even know that they're able to become like a real human being again, like a productive member of society after they after what they had done and the role that she had specifically with, from what it sounds like, manipulating someone who is at possibly a mental disadvantage, you know, and certainly an emotional disadvantage. And how do we bring that person back into society, you know, in a responsible manner? This is kind of getting a little bit ahead, but I believe Jasmine has like served her sentence, the uh, probation and the supervision out of like the psychiatric. So like, and I think that's, that's like not recent. That's like 2016. Like, so as someone, Mitch, who like yeah. knew Jasmine, what are your thoughts on someone like that basically just being out in the world now? For me, I like personally, I'm like, I think she should have spent her whole life in jail. I'll, like, I don't feel personally, if she was my neighbor, I wouldn't feel safe if I knew. It, and it's hard to feel any other way. And, and, but I also have to remember she was 12. And if I had done something when I was 12 that was that horrible, who knows? Maybe I was driving my dad's truck down the road, hit someone and killed them. I would want the chance to at least try to prove that I could be a normal person by the time I was like 24, if I was 12. So my personal thought is rotten jail, but I do respect the fact that they went through it and the fact that we haven't heard about her being back in court. Kind of, I think it speaks for itself. Because in she had five years after she got done that psychiatric and got released to have her record totally wiped clean. And we haven't heard a big news story about her coming back or getting any sort of charge. So 
until we hear otherwise, we can thank our government for doing a good job, I guess. Well, here's the thing that really concerns me. This really fucked with me. Like you said, five years after, if she didn't have any criminal charges in that window, her criminal record goes away. Nobody could dig it up, you know, other than obviously some sort of government agency. But like, she could literally be a kindergarten teacher right now. Yeah, it's with no restrictions whatsoever. For sure. And you know what? Every part of me wanted to be like, okay, like I always try to challenge myself to think on the other side, you know, get away from your knee jerk emotional reaction, which as you said, as I'm sure everyone else feels, throw them in a fucking hole and Mm -hmm. that's it. And I tried to challenge myself to be like, no, you got to get away. And remember, this is a child. You know, there's still development left here. And like, A, how do we not rob them of that development in prison? And then how do we help them develop into someone that would never do this again, that understands, most importantly, that understands the severity of what they did, right? But all she really had to do was just ride it out. And so when I tried so hard to just like understand the process, But the fact that after five years, that's not going to be there anymore, I was like, especially when they talk about like the lack of remorse in the court cases and like they seem to have remorse when they were communicating to each other via their notes a little bit, but this remorse seemed almost that they're not going to see each other again. Yeah, It didn't really seem yeah, like they mentioned in the notes, like we're going to be legends, you know, like we're going to go down in history kind of thing. And when you hear them talk about like they... They had said, well, somebody had said that she mentioned and kind of almost bragged about the sound her eight-year-old brother made when they slit his throat. The gargle. The day after. Yeah, yeah, yeah the it gargle. It was the gargle in At that a party made. the next day. Like, as a 12-year-old, like, that should be something that you struggle with the rest of your lives. Like, the, like for her and Jeremy, like, Jeremy, a little bit older, could be capable of dealing with it. But even if you saw that, if you hadn't participated and you just saw it, if I was 12 and I saw something like that happen and heard that happen, I'd be fucking traumatized, man. Like, the government would be paying a lot of money in fucking therapy to get me through that. But for her to just speak of it so casually the next day at a party, and there wasn't even a thought to get out of the fucking area. Like, they were half a kilometer outside of the search radius. Like, it's almost as if they did it and they were like, well, that's done. And You know, like, so when you think about the lack of remorse and how they acted afterwards and the way they were speaking, it makes it really hard for me to justify the fact that she's just out there in the world with no criminal record, just a regular human being. She could be dating someone who has no fucking idea. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, she could be your neighbor and you would have no idea. And if it was me knowing who she is, we'd probably get into a fist fight on the front lawn and be like, (laughs) stay away from my house. (laughs) But... I also have to look at it as if we put this system in place and she was the most violent offender at her age and they rehabilitate her and have no issue for the rest of her life, we have a great success on our hands that we need to look at how it was done and do it over and over again when these things happen. So as much as I want to say, don't give them that opportunity. If we're proving in Canada over and over again that we can fix that, we can't, we can't be stopping it. Mm-hmm. Because we're saving these children that would live probably criminal lives their whole life and letting them out and they're fine. Well, and that is kind of the point of incarceration, right? It's it's a rehabilitation yeah. so, center. Like, it's not meant to be I a holding facility. Just lived in a hole and we threw scraps down at her for the rest of her life. Or stones. Whatever, <laughs> until she just wasn't around. I have to respect the fact that if this does work and whatever she does with the rest of her life, she doesn't commit anything heinous what's to say but congratulations to the people involved when i finished reading the book and i was basically kind of stunned at the results 
what version two is saying earlier, like she could literally be a school teacher right now. These are some of the same thoughts that were running in my mind. Like she could be a lawyer. She could be a police officer. She could be anything that requires these hardcore background checks. And I was having a serious problem digesting this information. And I really didn't know how I felt. And I was struggling to interpret my own quote knee jerk reaction. Right? So my girlfriend who hasn't read the book and is basically as familiar with the story as someone who read the news back then, right? She shares the same sentiments that you do, Mitch, right? And so she kind of brought me down. And I think that's where I lean to. I'm like, okay, if she did her 10 years in jail and she was supervised in the psychiatric situation, whatever that looked like, and then there was another four or five years where there was like kind of conditional supervision. And I think I read after the fact on the internet somewhere is that she took some courses at Mount Royal University in Calgary and she's just living her life. I'm like, I'm okay with that as okay that I know how to be. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I'm not saying that if there's a line where I'm like, okay, no, this person just needs to be beaten to death and we need to get rid of her off the planet. And on the, on the other side is like, no, no, you know, sing the high praises. Like, I think I'm way closer to the line on that, on where I feel, but I'm just like, I'm just over that line. Right. And and I'm just, I'm like, okay, if it, if it works, if the system works, I'm like, okay, but that's as good as I feel about it right now. No, And I I think that's a good spot to sit on it. Like, I just feel like the justice system around the world is so fucked up in so many places that some kids in some places will never get that opportunity and that attention to fix them. That if we're doing it here and it's working even half the time, we got to keep doing it and we got to keep the option there because the other option is she was going to go, what become a adult criminal doing whatever, because we left her around criminals until she got out. And I think the latter is the better way to go. Yeah, and if we're not trying to rehabilitate people in prison, then why not just bring in capital punishment? Why why have (laughs) taxes pay for criminals to stay in jail for eternity? Like, if they're just there until they die, why don't we just speed it up? So if if we're going to be throwing people in there, like Mitch Mitch has been saying, we we have kind of almost the responsibility, we owe it to society to try to bring these people back in somehow, in some way. Whether I think the system does it correctly currently, I don't know. I went to high school with a kid who stabbed someone who's trying to steal his cube van and the guy walked out in the middle of it and he stabbed him to death and they gave him like two years. So generally the justice system in my mind, I kind of think it fails in a lot of instances. This one is a bit of a unique scenario though. So one thing that I wanted to ask you, Mitch, in the book, Runaway Devil, in one of the latter chapters, one of the psychiatric assessments that is done, I think it's like while before the trial, they call Jasmine, they say that she has a high level of executive intellectual and memory function. This is like a 12-year-old going on 13. So when I was rereading that, I was like, if you put anyone under the microscope, you could make them look any way that you want them to. If you, because of our internal biases, right? If you wanted to interview somebody and make them seem like the bad guy, if you have the skills and the know-how, you can make them look like a bad guy, right? That's why we 
I have trouble with journalists, right? Because they can spin the story whatever they want. Same, but same thing in the other regard. If you wanted to interview somebody and make them look like a million bucks, you could make them look like a million bucks. And definitely we were talking about earlier how it seemed like Jasmine was the puppet master, right? She had her fingers on the marionette strings and it was definitely her, and I'm not disputing that at all, it was it was her idea and she like manipulated Jeremy into committing these crimes, right? But is that the sense that you got knowing Jasmine? Was she like an incredibly smart 12-year-old girl? So before Jeremy and all this went down, I had met Jasmine on three separate occasions, just in passing. It was never like to meet her. It was like we weren't that kind of friends. But in our group, we had met each other. And we had never spoke about age. We were all underage, so it was like kind of less of an important thing to ask each other. And our entire friends group was under the circum under the understanding that she was like 17, 18. She spoke immaculately. Like she didn't talk like us. She didn't swear. It was like very proper sentences. She seemed like she came like for us when we first met her, we were like, she comes from some rich family. Like, they've got to be real proper people because of the way she presented herself. And, like, she would go and she she bought liquor. We'd watched her walk into a store and buy liquor. It'd come out no problem when, like, three of us had gone in and couldn't get it. She spoke immaculately. She was taller than she should have been. She was more developed than she should have been. Because we all, th- like, at 15, we thought she was older than us. The way she, she, like, when she talked to us, it was like she was talking down on us. Like, she just had this weird aura about her that had like this way older mental age than she was it like she had that kid side of her but it was very restrained and maybe that was just around us but she didn't act like a 12 year old ever so there's one photograph and they blurred out jasmine's face it's printed in the book runaway devil when she's holding that replica handgun and so i saw for the first time the unblurred photo on the internet today and that is not a 12-year-old girl. That looks like a 21-year-old woman or older. In just that picture in context, just, nothing next to it, you wouldn't be able to In tell. just that photo. And so this is just a like trying to wrap your head around who Jasmine was at 12 years old is just so difficult for me. Even like, I'm not trying to toot my own home, but like, even as somebody that has an education and, and that reads books, right? I'm still trying to wrap my head around with the rhetoric and the way in which these authors are portraying the story. And so, <laughs> you're, man, I'm like blown away by your closeness to the story, right? You're like, you're in this story and what you're able to sort of. Uh, share with us because man i'm just like i'm i'm kind of having difficulty over here <laughs> yeah absolutely and I, I think anyone that reads it would it brings up a lot to consider right there's a lot to chew on and especially like we've said you know when you look at the two characters we would always expect it to be the older male manipulating the younger female but even if you look at from an intellectual standpoint you know they portray jeremy to be kind of a struggling student both in classes and socially and then JR as a straight A student, excelling in school, excelling in arts and in sports, and you're physically more mature for her age, obviously presented herself very well. So she's going to she's going to have, 
you know, the, the physical advantage in terms of appearance. And also it sounds like a pretty significant intellectual advantage over Jeremy. There's something very alluring about when you meet someone, I know, especially for myself, like if, if I meet someone and they present themselves well, they have confidence when they talk, you know, their, their sentence structure is very good. The, the words they use, and especially like when you're 12, you know, like to a 12, 13, 14 year old, like it's pretty easy to come off as more confident because you're at that age, you're still fumbling over your words. You're swearing too much. You know, you're trying you to don't know what you're talking. Yeah. About. You're trying to fit an image Whereas you come across someone that's very, very confident in the things that they're saying. And, you know, with her being a straight A student and, you know, excelling in all of her classes, she would have that intellectual advantage. And it's easy to understand how she might have controlled Jeremy in that way. And then, of course, they do mention you know, her physical development. Dude, as everyone knows when you're 23, obviously physical development, we're talking about she had boobs. Like, let's <laughs> yes, break it that's down where here. We're going. Yeah. Every fucking 23 year old out there is going to be a sucker for someone with nice boobs, you know? And if they're a confident speaker, they fit the scene. You know, he was so desperate to fit in all the time. They always talk about how he would do anything for anyone just to like make them happy or do what they wanted him to do just so he could, you know, please them in some way. And so you've got someone that like you find very physically attractive, someone that has an intellectual confidence and they're in their, they're well known in the scene that you're in. People like them. To Jeremy, that, that person, you know, that would have been a trophy, you know, like that's what he would be aspiring to be, you know? And he was, he was even, they mentioned that he was kind of smaller. They picked on him in football. She had everything that he didn't have. And so she would have just been this beacon of light to him. And then you add the emotions, you know, to me, it seemed a lot like, like he got into the goth scene. They said at like 13, 14 years old. And it almost seemed like that's where his mentality stayed. You know, and she was this like beacon of light for people in that age group. And she had everything that he had wanted to have. So for someone at that age, and then even someone that intellectually is probably quite a bit younger, your emotions are going to go fucking crazy. Everyone remembers their first girlfriend, you know, your first heartbreak, like how rough that is. And you look back on it now and you're like, I was so dumb. Like the relationship was a fucking mess, you know, but you were fucking broken down. You know, everybody remembers that shit. You're just so emotionally immature that for him at that point, again, we're going to probably say this a hundred times, not justifying it. In the end, he's fucking 23. And the sentence that he got, I think is 100% correct. Like personally, as I've said before, bullets cheaper. I would have fucking 100% voted. Just like put the dude down. We don't need it, you know? And so, but it's understandable to see how he would have gotten himself into this position where she has this power over him. I personally think that he should have had, you know, the cognitive function to say, okay, murdering in general, terrible. Murdering an entire family, including a fucking eight-year-old, absolutely should have been walked away from. But you can see his immaturity in the way they speak. This guy, like, is still putting rar in his fucking notes from prison to her. Like, he speaks like a fucking 12-year-old, yeah. you know? So... I think that he was at such a mental disadvantage compared to her, and she absolutely controlled the scenario. But then that brings me to the question of how in the fuck does a 12-year-old, if she had that mental capacity to take control of this 23-year-old, how does she not have the mental capacity to commit, you know, to, to avoid committing such a fucking terrible crime? How can you you know, absolutely control someone like this and then not see how awful it is to do this. Well, I think it's a very interesting thing to look at because when 
I've, I've thought about this a lot from when it happened to like growing up my whole life. And I think like now looking back at it, just as I get older and might have my own children, I think having a very, very like in developed intelligent child at 12 and then having all of the emotion that can rage behind that intelligence, I feel is the two mixed just in the worst possible way within her. And that she found, a, she was she, maybe without even knowing, she was able to figure out, I can make these people do this. Maybe she didn't know it was manipulation. Right. She was so smart that it was just firing and she was doing these things and realized she could put people wherever she needed. Her parents included. She tricked them into getting able to go to a show to go and make out with Jeremy in the back alley. Yeah, but that's the funny part, right? She tricks them into, because like she goes to that family therapy, right? And they're like, oh, kind of surprised that she'd go. And then they give her some freedom. They extend the leash a little bit. And then they go to the show. So I, I kind of see what you're saying here. Like it sounds like- The emotion took the intelligence and the thought process out and just drove her. And then I feel like sometimes that emotion drove that intelligence without her considering what the intelligence was doing. Right. So she had the, the intellectual maturity without the emotional maturity to match. Without the emotional control. Right, right. Yeah, because so, when she goes to that show, she sees Jeremy and then runs around the corner at a show that her fucking parents are at. And they're just like making out in the alley. to avoid that, but the emotion drove her to not use the intelligence anymore. And it was this big whirlwind of intelligence and emotionality that were just doing whatever they the hell they wanted to without her being able to harness either one of them right right so i like growing up and thinking about it my whole life i very much like thought like the two combined may have been the perfect storm to direct at somebody that ha may have had something like fetal alcohol syndrome and low confidence and just wanted to be accepted and those two things that she was so well at but didn't know she was good at them and didn't know how to control them or stop them just unloaded on him because that's her first love and she didn't really even know what she was doing half of that time probably or how serious it would be to someone that was 23 saying these things like i gotta get rid of my family i gotta do this i gotta run away so having that emotion and intelligence directed at someone that also couldn't stop and go whoa there's a lot going on here that we should probably think normal <laughs> Well, yeah. You know, and it got out of hand. And I think one thing that really shows a lot uh, to your point there is at the time of the murders, like in the middle of all of it, Jeremy kind of panics and he goes home. He fucking leaves Runs her away. at the crime scene. Yeah. And she's there and she she kind of has the wherewithal to like go to the purse, get the credit card, call the cab and then run to the store and take out money and then come back and be back in time for the cab. Like she shows a lot well, she more. She didn't know what to do because she had to call Jeremy's house after he ran away. Now, on the morning of the murders, I'm sleeping on Jeremy's couch that, and he had left that night. I had heard him leave. He didn't say anything to me. I heard his truck start middle of the night. You're drunk. He's going to party more. I'm going to sleep. That's what I thought. And in the morning, I get wo I wake up and... Jeremy's kind of stumbling through the house. Kind of seemed like he was just getting home drunk. Didn't think too much about it. Didn't come up to me. Went straight to his room and then to the bathroom. And then the phone rings and I'm like, I'm not on my house. I'm not answering the phone. Then it rings again. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I'm trying to sleep here. I'm hungover as shit. So I go answer the phone and I don't know who's on the other end. And Jeremy's house is a house, a party house. And yeah, they mentioned that people came through quite yeah, regularly. And, so, and somebody on the other end saying, Jeremy just left me here. I don't know where to go. 
where are you? And I was like, well, I'm at Jeremy's house. You just called me. (laughs) Keep in mind, I'm like 15 hungover. I drank all day the day before. I have no idea who's on the other line. And they're like, well, what's what's his address? I, I don't know his address. He's always drove me there. And I'm still so hungover. I'm not like, who is this? And then, so I'm like looking around Jeremy's. I don't know where the fuck I am. I don't live in Medicine Hat. I lived in Leaders, Saskatchewan. So I'm looking around his house trying to find a piece of mail that has his address on it. And there's like six different addresses on the mail that is at his house. And I'm just, <laughs> so I'm like, holy man. Why is and, this funny? <laughs> and this is like Dylan's, uh, like version two said, like there was no cell phones back then that you just type in where am i yeah so i'm like finally i get like four pieces of mail that line up and this person's still like just breathing heavy into the phone while i'm like trying to figure out i'm like okay there's these three addresses but there's four of this address so this has got to be the address i'm at so i tell her i tell this person on the phone the address and they're like thank you so much is jeremy there i'm like i'm going back to bed and i hung up the phone and it was hurt Whoa, it was her calling the house crazy. because she didn't know what to do. Whoa. And because Jeremy didn't have a cell phone, she had to call the house. So I was the fucking person that was now, because at the beginning of the case, I was implicated in telling her where to go. Until oh. the other people that were, the other kids that were passed out on the floor backed up my story of going, no, he like woke up and just told somebody where we were and said he was going back to bed. Cause like they thought I had something to do with it at that point. Cause I was the first person to talk to Jasmine after the murders had happened. Well, and there was a lot of that, right? Like he convinces two girls to go clean his truck. Yeah. Casey and uh, Casey and Oh, what's the other name now? I can't remember. But yeah, he asked two girls, like, hey, can you go clean my truck and park behind these bushes? I don't want to get it stolen. They're like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, wh- what? <laughs> yeah, no questions asked, even. But yeah. that really goes to show you the mentality of the age group at the time, right? Like, now you would probably, like, if one of my buddies, A, if one of my buddies was like, hey, man, can you go clean my truck and park behind these bushes? I'd be like, uh, no, fucking do it yourself. Fuck off. Yeah, and then also, why do you want me to park your truck behind the bushes? Yeah. Like, that's going to raise a lot of questions. Well, and they said, what because it was blood in there, and they... Wiped it down with armor all. Yeah. Armor all wipes. Yeah, just smearing it. And, like, how would you not have... That was another thing I really struggled with. There was so many times where they're like, you're cleaning this truck down, there's blood in it, and they're like, oh, I just thought it was, like, something else. You know, like... In any other scenario, if these people were 30, you'd be like, that's fucking bullshit. You were assisting. You knew that was blood. And you just helped clean the fucking getaway vehicle. But again, you have to remind yourself how young these people are and just naive. Dude, the amount of times I did shit as a kid were thinking back. I'm like, that could have been a crime. (laughs) You know, like I'm not going to go into any more details, but like (laughs) I obviously didn't clean any getaway vehicles. But yeah, you look like back then you're like, oh, my buddy wanted me to do this. I'll just do, you know, you're not really thinking too fucking deep into it. The critical thinking hasn't developed yet. Oh, man, sometimes this this is just me. It's been years later, sometimes a decade later. I'm like, oh, man, that thing that I did, if a police officer was around, I would have been in handcuffs because what I was doing was illegal, mm-hmm. right? Not to say anything more to that, but there's been occasions where, oh, like that probably wasn't, but it took, but my point is, is it took me years to realize that. And so, and I understand like when I was 12, like I was a small monkey. Like I was not intelligent, you I know? know? you're a large monkey. <laughs> <laughs> right? And 
And so thinking about these kids' ages, and especially in that age group where you're 12 to even Jeremy's age at 22, 23, when he commits the murders and, and goes through the trial, like there is a wild spectrum of development. And it's not really until you get into your 30s where you start leveling off. When you're that age, like I remember being like 20 and feeling uncomfortable about talking to a 17-year-old girl. Like I'm like, I'm just talking to this person. There's nothing else going on. And I'm a little bit, because I understand the implications, right, of what it it might look like. But I remember being 14 and 15 and hanging out with people that were in their early 20s, in their mid-20s even, right? And so there's, I guess what I'm getting at is there's such a wide breadth of development that you can be like wherever you're at in your development like it's there's no roadmap like it's all over the place in that age range well and it's funny so like you said being so young early teens and of course the age where you're like i'm a teenager now like i'm a grown-up basically you know it's like you're 13 you barely barely there but then you hang out with people that are in their early 20s you know and like like I said, having grown up in the goth scene, I saw a lot of this, you know, like it was fucking rad. We have a friend that has a car. This is fucking awesome. I don't have to ride my bicycle around like an asshole for sure. This person's like a God to us. It's fucking phenomenal. And it, most of the time it was an older guy, right? The reasons for that are bountiful. You know, we could get into that, but we don't really need to, but it's funny looking back. I remember <clears throat> dating this girl and when I was about 14, early into the goth scene and her group of female friends had this one buddy. I can't remember his fucking name anymore. Not important anyways. And he was quite a bit older than us. You know, he had tattoos already and he was like kind of jacked and big into like he knew the bands, like members of the bands whose shows we were going to because he was their fucking age and he had a car. And he could get us booze. And like back then we were all like, oh, this guy's super cool. And now that I'm older, I look back on that. And like if I was to meet someone that's like hanging out with people that age like if I was 25 and when I was 25 I met some of these people and you're old enough at that point to go dude what the fuck are you doing like and it's only it's a 10-year span and your idea of these people totally flips you know like you get to the age that they were and you're like dude I fucking could never imagine hanging out with 14 year olds right now but when you were 14 and you're hanging out with a 25 year old this person's a fucking rock star dude you're like this is awesome and like you said from early teens to mid twenties, the way your perspective changes is so drastic. So Mitch, I wanted to rewind a little bit here and just kind of dive more into your story. Um, so how did you come about meeting JR and Jeremy? Like, did you meet Jeremy first? Did you meet JR first? So because I lived in Leaders, Saskatchewan, Leaders, Saskatchewan, if you haven't read the book, it's like a thousand people on a good summer. <laughs> it's in the winter. It's like 500. It's a really small place. So I would always drive up to Medicine Hat to go to shows because you weren't going to get a show in Leader. And that was the kind of music I was into. And that there was nobody that was even like a punk or a goth in Leader, Saskatchewan. It's all farmers. So I got beat up all week. And then I would drive <laughs> to Medicine Hat to hang out with people that were more like me. Big part of being young in the goth yeah, scene is getting your ass you know, kicked. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of what comes with the territory. But I, I just started going to Medicine Hat just on my own. Just because I was like, fuck it. There's, I don't have friends here. I'm going to go try to make friends because I had a car. And I was like working, I had enough money to drive to Medicine Hat every weekend. And I met my girlfriend at the time 
at a show there and actually she knew jeremy and uh i don't know do you guys want me to use a real name in your podcast or not oh yeah go for it okay so yeah i used it early okay. on like yeah. <laughs> I, I said jasmine too early okay, i considered I like, I that know. like early on like i was like wait because in the book they talk about how her name couldn't be published and a lot of the names were changed and i was like well she's like if her fucking criminal record's gone and she can be a kindergarten teacher we can fucking well, and she's also to anybody that would care to know her name isn't jasmine richardson anymore and she does still live in alberta oh okay i can't i can't say that uh, even off this podcast to you guys where she is because i that's something court ordered but fair enough i can't i can confirm that she is in alberta still well there goes our plan for a witch hunt Damn. <laughs> well, now I, you just, I just narrowed it down for you guys so just narrowed it down I can say that she is in one of the major cities of Alberta, but I can't say which one. Oh, well, at least we know she's not near the fucking cabin right now, so yeah, that's so cool. we are safe, unless yeah. she's just wandering around. Who knows? Um, but I met them, actually, through the girlfriend I was with at the time. She introduced me to Jeremy first, because I was I was going to, like, emo shows, I guess. Not quite metal shows, but I listened to more metal. And that Jeremy was, like, the metalhead to know. And so they she introduced me to Jeremy, and then, like... Honestly, me and Jeremy just became like super bros. And like, I would go to Medicine Hat to see my girlfriend, but would spend 90% of the time with Jeremy. And then at that time, Jeremy was with his ex that they talk about in the book. I I never met that ex. I don't know if that was a long distance thing that they had going on. I, I think it even mentions that he was engaged yeah. to this person. Yeah. Yes. And like, he had told me about that. And like, he had a picture of her in her wallet, like you would back in those times because he didn't have cell phones and stuff. So like, it seemed real, but like, I had hung out with Jeremy for a few months before I met Jasmine and I had never seen this girl and he had never said anything about like actually seeing her. So I don't know to the extent of what that ever was real. But once that was kind of done, I came to Medicine Hat one day to go to a show and he just introduced me to Jasmine. And to, like I said earlier, like after the first like five minutes of talking to her, I was convinced she was older than me. I was like, cool he's got like an older goth girlfriend now too cool that's awesome good for him and so like i didn't really talk to jasmine i've always been in my head i don't talk to my buddy's girlfriends i've been like that since i was like 13 like if you're dating a girl unless she reaches out to me about some bland shit that i feel safe responding to i just don't really talk to my buddy's girlfriends that's your girl I'm, I'm away from it unless i'm being polite so i didn't really talk to her that much it was always like i said in passing but I, yeah, and it was, I had only known Jeremy maybe six months when I went there for that weekend that all of this went down. So, like, I hadn't really had a lot of interaction with Jasmine. It was mostly when I would see her at the mall. And, like, I wasn't a mall rat because I wasn't from Medicine Hat. So, like, when I was at the mall, it was to, like, pick up three people and throw them in my car. So, like, the most I talked to her was, like... Not a reference to the family. <laughs> <laughs> Not a reference. Uh, but, like, uh, it would be, like, driving her this the eight blocks it was from Medicine Hat Mall to her house because she wasn't allowed to have guys drop her off. So I'd have to drop her off, like, a block away. And I always, like, I didn't really ask why because I wasn't part of that group all the time. I was like, eh, your parents don't want to see a bunch of fucking kids that are probably high and drunk fucking driving around Medicine Hat. I get it. So mm -hmm. we would drop her off. But yeah, I met them through my girlfriend at the time. She's oh, Haley in the book. I won't out what her actual name is. Fair enough. Uh, but yeah. So did you hear them discussing, because they mentioned like they talk about it pretty freely, like the idea to kill 
Like he's talking about it online. Well, okay, so it's it's tough to say like the span of who all I think in like the large friends group was talking to them about them killing this family before it happened. But it was a, it was I and like this is out in court. It's it'll be public record one day. I had myself between me and Jeremy and me talking him out of it had over 200 and some messages of him saying, I, she's convincing me to do this stuff. And me saying, this is a fucking dumb idea, bro. Like I'm 14. I can tell you this. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And like, it went on it, and like, there was over 200 messages here and there, not continuous just for me. Right. So I can't imagine, you know, like people like Jordan Atfield and Grant Bolt that I know as well, that he was, literally involving them and trying to get them involved in doing it. I can only imagine how many messages there were there. I have no idea the amount of messages she sent. Cause like I said, I was one of those people that didn't talk to my buddy's girlfriend. She didn't, she had mentioned it maybe in real lightly to me in a message, but I didn't talk to her that much that I didn't take it serious. I did understand the severity of how hard he felt like he needed to do it because when he came to my house to pick me up that weekend and stayed the extra day when my mom had headed away. Yeah, because you guys, in the book, it says that you guys just hung out, basically, Yeah, we hung right? out at my house for, I think it was two days before we went back to Medicine Hat. And I, I spent two days trying to talk him out of it. Whoa. I went to Medicine Hat knowing that it may fucking occur. <laughs> he, like, he didn't say to me, like, we're going to do it this weekend. That was never implied to me, but it, he he kept saying, like, if I drive you up there, I might not be able to drive you back. And that was the thing in my head where I was like, fuck off, man. Like, don't, just don't do it. And you can drive me home and not go to jail and the people will be alive. Like, I, I don't know how long I'm going to sit at my house and tell you that's the only way out of this. But that's all you could do. And like there, there was, like I said, some 200 messages that I had to go through in court one by one. Well, and I would imagine like at that age it's probably pretty fucking hard to grasp the idea that it could actually happen. You know, like when I was that age, death in general is hard to kind of wrap your head around. You know, like there was some people in my school that had died through like accidents and stuff. And you really, you get it. They're dead. You know, you're not fucking five, but it's just, it's kind of hard to grasp the idea. And then, so to imagine that your buddy might kill three fucking people, like despite them talking about it, like how many fucking kids back then are like, I'm going to be an astronaut or some shit, you know? And you're like, okay, you know, like people talk about all kinds of wild shit. So did you think that it, like there was a significant chance it could happen or were you kind of like, this is that emotional immaturity that's just kind of coming out, like expressing itself in words? Because it's, it's one of those things where if I imagine somebody told me about it, I'd be like, all right, dude, fucking like grow up. Like you're just ranting about some shit. You're being emotional. But we've also got to remember the dude was wearing like a vial of blood around his neck and claimed that he was a werewolf. So like at this point, you're going to be like, if someone's possible, capable of doing it, like this might be the guy. Yeah. And you have to, you have to remember that like me and Jeremy hanging out was like a once a month occurrence. Like all mm-hmm. of this, I'm a werewolf. He didn't pull that shit with me. I was most, for the most part, I was a farm kid still. Right. You know, so for him to say some weird shit, like I liked the culture they were into in their music, 
But I was like a farm kid. For him to show up to my house in Leaders of Saskatchewan wearing a fucking vial of blood and saying he was a vampire, I might have whooped his ass for all he knows. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm not that, like, I, I'm from the other side of the fucking tracks on that. Like, I hang out with farmers all day. What are you showing up here looking like that for? Yeah. Even when he showed up in my house for those few days, he showed up in blue jeans, a fucking white shirt, no makeup on on his face, no jewelry. He's just hanging out. Normal fucking guy. It was when he went out with all the goth kids in Medicine Hat that he looked like that. The most of the time when I had met Jeremy, he did not look like a goth kid. So kind of a social chameleon of sorts. Yeah, I would say because when I would meet him when I showed up in Medicine Hat and I'd be like, what are you doing, man? And he'd be doing just some like odd job for someone because he didn't have a job, but he did cash stuff. He'd be like, yeah, let me clean up and I'll meet you at some place. And he would show up looking fucking like I do today. Yeah. Uh, which one of the friends was it was like worked in the oil patch and listened to country music? Uh, there was one the friend, cowboy hat. Yeah, he was like a lit. He he sounded like the guy that you would meet from Medicine Hat. Not yeah. to sound disparaging, right? But yeah, you, can you know, I'm like your average Alberta cowboy. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. Right? You know, he was a coke dealer, but well, yeah, <laughs> he's a cowboy. Madison average. Hat. Yeah. <laughs> average Alberta cowboy. Yeah, average Alberta <laughs> cowboy. I have been offered cocaine in Medicine Hat more than any other city I've ever been oh, into in my life. Absolutely. So. I, there was a, a wide variety of characters in here. You know, like we said, like you obviously were a little bit different from like the main goth group they hung out with. And then there's the cowboy hat guy. And then there's Jeremy who was kind of off the deep end with the fantasy land stuff, which also kind of fits the profile of the, you know, emotional immaturity and whatnot. Like almost kind of living like a little kid's fairy tale sort of thing. I like, think it came more in the fitting in because Jordan Atfield, who's in the book, he lived in Leader before he lived in Medicine Hat, and I was really good friends with him. And he that the first time I had ever heard of like some human being in real life talking to them say, "I think I'm a vampire." The first time that or a werewolf, first time that ever happened in my life was Jordan Atfield. I the first day he came to school, that was one of the very first things he said to me. <laughs> uh, and like at that time, I wore Wranglers, cowboy boots, and fucking button-up plaid shirts. And he came right up to me and said, hi, my name is Jordan Atfield, and I believe that when the moon turns full, I can turn into a werewolf. And I laughed and laughed and laughed in yes. his face and asked him if he was serious, and he said yes, and he started talking about how his claws grew. Big, long story. He got into it. But it wasn't... And like I knew Jeremy before he had met Jordan, and Jeremy was, like I said on and off pretty normal looking guy and then him and jordan started hanging out and then jordan moved in and that's when he started having this like quick elevation into all that lycanthrope i guess you would call it i don't know but there is a name for it but they started those two when they met that became a very encrusted thing into jeremy's personality so i feel it can't that they make it seem like he always was talking about how he that's was right. some yeah. 300 year old mm. that was a very recent thing to the murder and the jasmine thing like that ramped right the hell up he liked right. werewolves and liked watching like underworld yeah yeah but he's i like still I said, do he wore blue jeans and a white t-shirt when he wore that like when he watched that stuff and he was at home you know it wasn't he wasn't always like hey i'm a i'm a werewolf it's actually interesting that this theme was in the book because this has kind of been a recurring theme for us in the podcast so in the first season uh we covered the book zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance and in that the main character who is like a literal genius but has um, schizophrenia and he has shock therapy to treat it. And he talks about his previous personality 
kind of his previous consciousness haunting him in a way. And he nicknames it Phaedrus and gives it like a wolf personality, you know. And in that, we started talking about like the connections between uh, werewolves and schizophrenia and the whole idea of lycanthropy. And I was like, man, I wonder if like this is a thing. You know, like if there's maybe that's where the whole idea of lycanthropy came from. It was schizophrenia before we fucking knew what schizophrenia was. And there's people out there that are like, yeah, bro, I'm fucking werewolf and I'm going to change when the moon comes out and shit. And back then we didn't have the medical science to go, uh, no, dude, you need help. They were like, this motherfucker's a werewolf. You know, you look at the Salem witch trials and shit. Like there's a lot of shit that we believed for ridiculous reasons because we didn't quite understand, you know, um, mental health. And I read another great book called Steppenwolf with the same theme, you know, a guy kind of going through schizophrenia and he has this other personality that has this animalistic theme to it. You know, his main character is kind of like a responsible and respectable human being in society. And then he has this wolf inside him, Steppenwolf, wolf of the steps that just wants to shed his human form and go into the mountains and be kind of a beast of sorts. And there's even some some themes like gory themes about like of attacking people and like almost poetic and metaphorical in the sense of shedding the human skin and breaking away from society, but written as literal and physical attacks, you know? And so, and I ended up diving deeper down that rabbit hole and there is actually a long history of animalistic personalities, especially with wolves and schizophrenic patients. Mm. So it's kind of, like I said, it's kind of a recurring theme and it's interesting in this scenario that this would have come out in this sort of fantasy and especially when we're talking about a possibility of undiagnosed mental illness. You know, so who knows, maybe with him and his friend, there was something more there. And then you find someone to feed off of with this and it ramps up. So there could have been something there with the mental illness side of things. And then when he met his friend that identifies as a fucking werewolf, it kind of brought that side out a little bit more, you know, which would also explain a lot of, you know, like in the attacks, he's doing it and he's so there, like he's fighting the fucking father to the death. And then after the attacks, it almost seemed like he had like a battle of consciousness, you know, like it sounded like he kind of flipped and was like, oh, fuck, wait a minute. Like he was sick to his stomach and had to leave immediately. And like, it well, was to, almost to, like a to switch be flip. Fair, before he arrives at this place, it says that this man did the amount of cocaine that he <laughs> that it says he did. And I, I don't do a lot of drugs anymore, but if I had done that much cocaine, I'd be throwing up too. He did like, yeah. it doesn't it matter book, if like I, he did like six lines. I'm like, well, and then he it says fuck. that he did two full grams before he went in. Yeah. Says that he bought two and left with them. And so just like, did them all at once. Yeah. So like if I hadn't killed anyone and I had done six lines and then two grams of Coke and went, just went outside, I'm going to throw up. For sure. <laughs> Like like when it says that, like he freaked out, like, as you're saying, that very much would have been a mental illness fighting itself, I believe. But also like, there's no way that once he, that adrenaline rush took a dive that he didn't need his body and mind didn't need to do something. And that's probably why he ran away. And for sure. And also the battle to the death. Like Jonah could speak to this as well, having multiple boxing matches. But do you remember the first time you go into a sparring session? And like in your head, you're like, I'm invincible. And you get through the first three minute round and you're like, I'm going to throw up and die. Yeah. Like that's in a, a sparring boxing match, let alone fighting someone to the death. And they mentioned that uh, Mark grabs a screwdriver. 
and yes catches him in the face with it and then one of the times he stabs mark he hits bone and bends it so like the physical exertion alone would also be enough to like you you probably you're going through so much at the time and then like if you take all of the drugs out of it the and the alcohol he had drank that night yeah you're still going to i think react that way and that we're talking about a boxing match not adding all the like he's traumatizing himself whether he is committing it or not all that blood flying around and the things he is doing he doesn't know it right now but your brain is going through severe 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 trauma killing someone or not whether you liked it wanted to or not you're you're in you're taking it in Mm -hmm. so like for me alone that amount of blood i'm throwing up all over the place (laughs) like there would have been vomit all over that house when i walked in to investigate it even i would have been like holy fucking thrown up so like there's so many things yeah that you tie in there that like i've never killed anyone i don't know what my state might be i might have to go for a fucking run after i kill someone (laughs) too i don't know yeah let alone adding all those drugs to it talking about the the black eye though and the screwdriver that he got stabbed with before when after going back to the the phone call where i didn't know i was talking to jasmine but gave her all the information said fuck you i'm going back to bed there was me and two other people in the living room when the cab pulled up outside and i still at this point was kind of waking up i've wore contacts my whole life i did not have them in at this point because i was sleeping the vehicle comes in and i see jeremy go and meet who someone at the door at this point i'm I was starting to put it together that maybe that was his woman that had called and asked because he had shown up without a girl. Well, unless you're cheating on your girl, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, I, I, I was putting two and two together and they, he, so she arrived and she went into his room and he came out and kind of like gave me a little shake, like over the couch, like, Hey, are you awake? And I remember, like, this is with no contacts or glasses on. I remember looking up and going, what the fuck happened to your eye? And, like, dude, it was, I've never seen an eye look like that. I, if, like, I, if his eye still functions 100%, I don't know. He's, that's a fucking miracle. I've never seen an eyeball that purple and swollen and disgusting and still open. That was the part that was fucked up because there was no white in the eye. It was all red. Whoa. And like it was hard to see the pupil even in it because it was so fucked up. And like I'm talking like it was like protruding from his eye socket like a solid inch, dude. It was disgusting. But like I can't give you the full details on it because like I said, I couldn't see clearly. And all he said was, You shouldn't be here in a couple of hours. I have to go. And if anybody asks you, you haven't seen me since last weekend. And that's all he said. Not breathing heavy. He had just come out of the shower like a few minutes before she had showed up. So he didn't have... And maybe he did. Maybe he still had blood on him. I don't know. I, like right. I said, I couldn't see very clearly. I said this in court too. But he just... It was glanced over. He had said those things. And then I like kind of sat up as I was waking up to turn around and the last thing I caught was him slinging a white bag over his back. The one with all the bloody clothes in it. And like I said, and like, and I remember when I told oh, the investigators that I saw the white bag, they, I, I knew, I knew nothing about what was supposed to be in this white bag. I, ju- I was just telling them my story about what I knew the very first time. And I had never seen two dudes eyes go like that. When I said like, I don't know, some white bag slung over his shoulder. And then they walked out the back door. Where'd the white bag go? Did you see anything on the white bag? 
told you guys I wasn't wearing my contacts. I don't know when that was like 20 feet away from me. Like that's a pretty yeah. long shot of distance with my bad eyesight. But yeah, it turned out that that had all the bloody clothes in it. And I remember I woke up. I was like, something's fucking not right. If I wasn't supposed to see this guy all like I'm, I'm 15. I put together if I wasn't supposed to see you. I sure as fuck can't be caught at your house. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was my thought. I was like, whatever happened, good or bad, little or massive, if I'm not supposed to know where you are, the last fucking place I should be is at your house. So I woke up my two friends. I was like, this is what Jeremy just told me. Collectively, we need to figure out what we're doing. None of us lived in Medicine Hat. At that point, I got so drunk the night before, I didn't know where my car was. <laughs> I didn't know where my car was in Medicine Hat. And for the life of me, that whole day, I couldn't find it. So I was trying to get a ride home and leave my fucking car. I was like, I don't know. But my mom is going to fucking kill me. I'll deal with this later. Yeah, I was like, if I get home and tell my mom that I made it home, but my car's in Medicine Hat, but I wasn't trying to break my curfew, maybe I won't get in trouble. Dumb thought as a kid, I know. Like, she would have been way happier to not have to drive me back and get my car. But eventually, I got a hold of... KC, who was downtown, the runaway from the book that had stayed at my house prior. And she was like, yeah, I know some people that can probably get you a ride home. I'll call around while you try to get me downtown. So I, I like collected the people we were I was with and we walked fucking what seemed like 20 miles. I know I couldn't have been that we would have left Medicine Hat. If we walked <laughs> on the yeah, it's not yeah. that big. But we walked all the way downtown and we got into a Dairy Queen and we just ordered some beverages because we'd walked so far it was like holy fuck and we were all hung over to the tits carrying all of our backpacks and stuff that we had at his house because we were like don't leave anything here if we weren't supposed to see him we gotta leave no trace and we get into the fucking dairy queen we sit down with our drinks and go i wonder what the fuck like kind of like as you'd recount your night from being drunk the night before like wonder what the fuck he did and literally as if it was in a movie they announced on the radio right after my friend had said that they were looking for Jeremy Steinke in <laughs> the implications of a murder. Whoa. And at that time, the news report was, and it was saying Jasmine Richardson right on the fucking news report saying that she was a, a missing person. That's right. They talk about that in the book, how so they the suspected she was a missing. The time yeah. we heard it, in my head, I went, wait, she's not missing. Cause I just fucking seen her this morning with the dude that's now wait. And like, that's when it all hit in my head and I looked at them and like, we were also hung over. My two friends hadn't even clued in. Like we were all listening and like they hadn't clued. And I was like, we need to get the fuck out of here. Like I literally like instantly fell on fire and like, I was going to puke or something. I was like, I can't tell you guys what's going on in my brain with like these 50 people in this restaurant, man. We got to go outside before I can say this. <laughs> and we get outside and I just vomit everywhere. I, I threw up a full perfect like sidewalk square worth of vomit. Like three or four. <laughs> Jesus it was most, it was partially like I was so hung over and dehydrated and just walked like three miles to get some water. And as soon as I got it in me, I had heard that. And I, I was just, and they thought I was just hung over. I like finished throwing up. They're like, okay, let's go back in. And I was like, Jasmine was at the house this morning, 100%. And they were like, and they both looked at me and they're like, oh, okay. And none of us really knew what the fuck to do. And at that point, all I could think of was, I need to get the fuck out of here and get home. 
Yeah. I was like, I don't have a cell phone. I don't, and we're not going to find my fucking car. Who can get me home? So it took me hours calling around our friends to see who had the money at the end of a weekend of partying to pay for gas to get there and back and a vehicle and wasn't still drunk. And eventually, what's her name? Kaylee. Yeah. Kaylee agreed to drive me home. And we were, to, I was still, or sorry, it was Casey that drove the truck. Yes, Casey. Kaylee was who I was with downtown, just to clear. And she's, I didn't know this person that was driving the truck home and driving me home yet. I'd never met them before, except for like in passing, but like we didn't know each other. Mm-hmm. Not enough that I would, should have been getting in a vehicle with them to drive an hour and a half into the middle of fucking nowhere. But they were going to give me a ride home. Didn't know where my car was. Sure. Let's go. So they get there and they pick us up, throw us in the back seat of the vehicle. Don't say anything else. They're like, yeah, let's go. And we got to, it was the very first gas station outside of Medicine Hat and they pulled over like around the back of it. I felt kind of, I was like, why are we going around the back of this gas station that there's no one else at? We could have parked right in front. (laughs) And so we get out and she's like, we need to know if when we get to leader, if there's somewhere we can park the truck overnight. So just want to pause for a second there. So at this point, Jeremy and JR are in the back of the truck. They're in the back of the truck and I have no idea. Neither does Kaylee with me. We were picked up by two girls in a green truck. The one that I had I'd seen her before but never like had a conversation. And the other one was her friend that I was told. Like, I don't know these people, but my friend knows these people and is verified they're all good. So right. they're giving me a ride home. And so we get out. I go in the store to just grab some beverages for the way home. And I come back out and they're like asking me these questions. Is there like a barn we could park at? Is there an abandoned something that we could stay at? And I was like, hey guys, like this is leader we're talking about. If you just roll into someone's yard late at night, you're going to get shot at. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't suggest it. I don't know a farm that you could probably roll into and not have that occur. Or at least have the farmer rip up on you and be like, get the fuck out of here. You know. They protect their farms out there. And I, so eventually I'm like, why? Like you, you just get enough gas to go there and come back. What's, what's fucking going on? And she's like, well, come around the back. And like all their way. And like when she opened the back, there was like just a blanket there. And I was like, what? I, th- I think I even remember what is like, what is, what are, what am I looking at? And all of a sudden the, fu- I just see the fucking arm come and it flips open and there's fucking Jeremy. And he didn't. And at first, he comes out of the fucking truck and comes and talks to me, pulls me right aside. Same questions they were asking me. I'm like, oh, dude, I just fucking told them. I was like, A, why the fuck are you in the back of the truck? <laughs> B, do you know that there's cops looking for you for a murder? And he still hasn't said a word to me. And he's like, we, ha- we have to find somewhere to hide. And I was like, whatever you're doing, get in the back of that fucking truck. And you don't speak to me. You don't talk to me, whatever you're doing. I was like, there's cops looking for you. I don't know, but I need to get home. And he goes, well, Jasmine's in the back too. And I was like, I just looked at him. I was like, I have to get in this vehicle for an hour and a half now with you fuckers and try to make it home. And hope nobody knows that you're in the back of this truck. He's no one knows. I was like, all right. I was like, I don't want to know anything. Don't fucking tell me anything. Get me home. 
So, so we, this this was in Medicine Hat still, or once you reached Leader? This was, I would say, it's about five minutes. If you're heading towards the Saskatchewan border out of Medicine Hat, there's a gas station just off the highway that's like five minutes out. So we weren't even really out of Medicine Hat city limits while I was having this conversation outside of the truck, face to face with him. Where there, I'm sure there's video camera proof of us having the conversation too, but there was nobody else at the gas station. It was late at night, and we had the conversation, and we got back in, and I like got in the truck and I remembered the girls just wouldn't say a fucking word. It was me and three girls and I was mad. I was like, what the fuck have I like, we are going to pull up on my mom's house with this dude in the back. And my mom has probably heard the fucking news report and is wondering where the fuck I am. She's going to be in all sorts of a state. Like I was so convinced that my mom would be so powerful to kill that murderer. She would be so mad at me. You know, I was like, <laughs> I'm safe once I get there. Cause this guy ain't killing my mom. She'll kill him. Like, got angry mom power. Yeah. I was like, I, I was so, and so we got in the truck, didn't say a word. And then we got to the house. Kaylee wanted to see if she could stay at my house. So I went and got, woke up my mom. Oh, never wake up your parents. Uh, wake up my mom. The first thing. <laughs> oh, you're late. Yeah, mom, and I don't have my car. Where's your car? I have no fucking idea, but I'm home. So we have to go get your car. It's a medicine hat. Okay, what else? Uh, my friend that's a runaway wants to stay here right now because some fucked up shit happened at medicine hat this weekend, mom. That's why I'm late. That's all I said to her. And she was like, I don't care what kind of fucked up shit happened. Tell that bitch to get back in whatever vehicle that you came with <laughs> and they drive the fuck away from here. And like... <laughs> In my head, I like every bit of my fiber was screaming, tell your mom what the fuck's going on right now so that you can have some level of protection from your mother like when this blows up. Because I knew they didn't have enough gas to get home and the gas stations were closed. And I was like, there's no fucking way by tomorrow morning they aren't looking for this truck and they don't catch it before it gets back to Medicine Hat. So like... I was screaming in my body to tell my mom what the fuck happened, but she was so fucking mad at me that I was like, okay, cool. So I was like, you get back in the truck, you got to go. And they were like, where do we get gas? I was like, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told you when we left Medicine Hat. There's gas almost at every fucking farm here. But if you're going to go and try to get it, you're probably going to get shot at or ran off of the farm. Don't do it. I was like, find somewhere to park that's not in town. Well, as the book tells us, they didn't. Yeah, they stayed in town. They went to the only gas station there was in the morning to get their shit and got arrested outside of the school. Well, and the interesting part is that they went to that gas station and there was the one cop who was off duty at the time they had contacted in leader. And he was like, if they're coming from Medicine Hat, they're going to need gas. And there's only really one gas station coming into town. And so he went and staked out that gas station. So it's almost a piece of dramatic irony because you're like, oh, they're like going to be looking for this vehicle. But like basically immediately after they left your house, they were spotted at the gas station. Not immediately because they dropped me off about midnight and and they were caught at the gas station in the morning. So I, I've never heard where they were in those hours if they tried to find like a place to hide or if they just parked somewhere but the cop didn't catch them until the gas station opened the next morning because they got newspapers and shit oh okay and they had dropped me off like i said around like midnight and that wouldn't have been around that had to be around eight o'clock if the gas station was open so there is a period there that i don't know what the hell actually happened you're and now that you mention it i do remember in the book they mentioned that they sleep in the truck somewhere 
yeah, or try. It's never really mentioned as to where they actually went in that yeah. situation. And it's probably because they asked a bunch of kids not from Leader where they were. And they probably didn't know <laughs> yeah. where they were. In, in a fucking truck on the side of the road. Yeah, like. like they probably just were on a dirt road somewhere. But yeah, they get arrest they get spotted there and then later on arrested in front of the school about a half hour before all the kids were supposed to be there. So I woke up the next morning, probably right as they were getting arrested, but around the same time in my bed, to my mom waking me up and going, get the fuck to school. I'll talk to you about you being late wherever your car is after school. <laughs> so I, like, I have all of that in my head of what's probably going to happen to my friends. And I get to school and I sit down and ironically, my first class is law class. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm sitting at the back of the class and we get 15 minutes in and there's the principal knocking on the door and he goes, Mitch, can you come with me? And in my head, I'm like, so wrapped up in medicine hat. I'm like, did I do something fucking dumb on Friday at school too? Like, am I going to have to deal with <laughs> oh, this God. as well? And he, he got me out of the classroom and he's, he, it was the only, I'd been in trouble quite a bit. I just didn't really like authority figures in my school. It was the first time he was being super calm and very, like, careful with me. Okay. And he goes, Mitch, I'm just, I don't want you to panic. There's going to be two cops in the office when we get there. You don't have to say anything. I'm there. I'm going to defend you until your dad gets here. And I just looked at him and went, what the fuck did I do? Like, I didn't even hold the swear in. I was, at that point, like, my whole life was falling apart. I was like, what the fuck did I do at the school? The, the cops are here. You're not even making the connection. No, like yeah. I, I thought they were two different things. I was like, did, did I break something? And he's like, no, Mitch. He's like, all I want you to know is when you get in that room, you don't, you don't talk until your dad gets here. I was like, okay. And I got in there and I sat down and the cops go, so who is Jeremy Steinke? And I, I just remember I looked at my principal because I was like, you told me not to say anything. And they said it again. And I went, well, fuck, like he's the guy that you guys probably arrested this morning somewhere between here and Medicine Hat. And they, and the, I just seen my principal go. Oh. You know, it's like at that point in my life, I was like, fuck it, fuck it. Like I didn't kill anyone, but you know what? Fuck it. And the cops went, don't say another word. Whatever you do, don't say another word. We're going to wait till your dad gets here. And they're like, but because we don't know anything right now, we're going to have to cuff you. We're going to put you in the back of the cop car. Uh, it was, I was like, I knew my dad at that point. He was raging, raging cokehead. I was like, I don't know if me being handcuffed in the back of a cop car when my dad arrives here is the best thing. And they were like, why? I was like, he's going to lose his mind if I am in the back of a cop car at school. And they're like, well, what if we tell him what's going on? I was like, don't know. <laughs> like that's, that was my, I remember it even now. That's how I said it to them. I was like, no, no. And they're like, what do you want us to do? I was like, you call my fucking mom right now. And they're like, you want us to tell your mom what's going on? I was like, if, you, if you're giving me a choice here, yes, you call my mom. They called my mom on the like principal's phone. They're all still in the, and I swear to God, they, they was, should have been, it was a speakerphone without a speakerphone. She was screaming. Whoa. You get my son out of that. I, like lost her mind. So eventually the cops said like, because of the investigation that's going on, I don't know. I was asked to leave because they, I'm guessing they were divulging information to my mother of why I was under arrest and everything, why they had to take me to the station, why she could meet me there. 
but they had promised her they weren't going to question me any further. I had implicated myself in knowing something, but not in anything that was going to have me transferred to Medicine Hat. Right. So I got to the station and keep in mind, we're in leader. We have two squad cars. I'm now in the second squad car besides the truck that Jeremy is now locked in outside of the cop station. Yeah, because they didn't have enough space. They had one cell. Yeah. One cell and Jasmine was in there. So I get, I roll up into the, and my mom isn't there yet. So now in the parking lot, we have Jeremy in a truck who's banging on the thing, seeing now I'm arrested too, being brought in there. The three girls they arrested are banging all in the back of the other fucking cop car. They just took me out of, and they're all pissed. They're getting shoved in there. And then they bring me in. And the only way to get to the interrogation room is to walk me right past Jasmine too. So now I am literally Whoa. sitting in there and I am the only person not in handcuffs anymore in the station. And they're telling me I'm the only person that can tell them the truth. Uh, and like the first things they said were, we are assuming everybody was at the crime scene until we can prove otherwise. Oh, damn. It was the first thing they said to me. And the cops said, we know you're, and they were like, what they say? We know you're a minor. But everybody is implicated until we can prove otherwise. And that's why we can't talk to you until you have a parent here. Well, that's not really how the legal system works. I thought it was the <laughs> other way. Yeah. But as you can see, even in the book, the cops were very flaily in how they treated all the kids right off the hop here. Like a lot of it was not done to the book. A lot of it got thrown out in court. Even my first and second statements didn't hold up in court because they berated me into saying things that weren't true. Like I was telling them that I was places that I couldn't have fucking possibly been because there was video of me somewhere else. But because of the way they were asking me things, I was so stressed and confused. And my mom still hadn't got there while the first guy was prodding me. So when my mom got there, she flipped, asked for a lawyer to be there, all of that stuff, told them. By the time I'm done, this statement is going to be garbage. You've told, had my son tell you he was three places that I know he couldn't have been. He's underage. He wasn't at bars. You know, those sort of things. Yeah, yeah. So they went through my questioning twice there. And then my mom was like, that's enough. Like, he literally just got home at midnight last night. He Now you guys have divulged what he was dealing with all weekend, potentially. And I'm going to take him home. And so they took me home. And they obviously took Jasmine and uh, Jeremy up to Maple Creek that day for this uh, court hearing to get him transferred back to Medicine Hat. And then, yeah, it, for everybody that was involved, it was like three months of getting dragged in to be interrogated by different detectives in different tactics. And I think between my friends and I, we were never able, because we were told, like, legally, if we divulge what our statements are to each other, A, we're affecting the case and can be charged by affecting the case and b we won't be able to be used in the case so like you guys can talk about what happened that's general knowledge but don't be talking about your statements and i think all of us it was like our it was like a fourth or fifth statement before the cops had done it the right way that oh, it could really? be used in court damn really it was like my, i remember my dad getting pissed that he had to keep coming up because they weren't wording things in ways that underage children could respond to them. They talk about that in the book when they are interviewing JR. Yeah. Uh, after she's brought back to Medicine Hat, right? Like there's there's a special process to... Yeah, the wording has to be almost less official. 
Yeah, and there's a, it's very procedural in that they have to like, hey, if there's a word you don't understand, you need to stop me so I can yeah. explain it to you. Do you understand? Like there's no back and forth like you, you see on TV shows. Mm. It's very, do you understand what I just told you? Okay, I'm going to ask you the next question now. And that's mm. how the conversation is supposed to break down. Yeah, and to be honest, those detectives have all the patience in the world because with me, myself, I can only imagine with other children, but with me, myself, they would ask the question, then they have to ask those series of questions, and you wouldn't believe the amount of times that by the time they're done, you don't know what the fuck they asked you anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so you just went through a four-minute process to get back to the start of it. The, it the, uh, after, like, I think it was like my second statement, they allowed me to write down what the question was while they were saying all the other bullshit <laughs> so that I could look down at it And after I was... Because, like, the answer is yes, because they have to say it to you, like... 30 times before you're even talking about the story you know what they're saying but like you're listening because they're like you have to listen in case it's any different because once in a while it, the wording slightly changes because it'll be for an opinion question they have to change the wording for a fact question they have to change the to like fact wording so like as you're trying so hard to understand if they're asking your opinion or fact what you know you forget what the hell you're even being asked. <laughs> so like, I can only imagine with people that were less cooperative in the beginning, how rough that would have been for some of them. And I for give sure. them all the props for all the, like I know how many statements they had to take just with me. So like with all the other underage people, I can only imagine how much patience those guys had. And I don't blame them for fucking up. It was like, you don't deal with that many underage children on a murder case hardly ever well and they were talking about in the book i can't remember which statements were thrown out but it sounds like well hearing from you there was a lot of statements that they couldn't use but the the, the thing that struck out and it, it was almost sort of like a throwaway moment in the book it's how sort of nonchalant the police officer's attitude was to having the statements thrown out they're like oh yeah and you're like wait a second like, yeah, they're like oh they most of this will probably get thrown out yeah and i was like wait what like you're trying to get statements for a case for a triple homicide and the attitude just really struck me as odd that they're just like oh yeah okay that one didn't work we'll try it again i'm like wait what well to be honest when they brought us in after we were on our like fourth to fifth statements they were pretty open with us that they had all they needed right okay like the, when we were coming back they were just reinforcing their statements to be bullet good in court yeah. You know, they wanted to make sure that every shot they fired, there was no way to throw it out. Right. Because when I came in to do my final statement of them just cleaning it up and doing the two hour full start to finish, real professional, good to go, they told me beforehand, we might not even call you. We have admission from both of them firsthand. We don't need this. These are just extra bullets flying through them to make sure they don't get out. So. I don't even know how many witnesses they chose not to actually call on both trials because once they had it from both of them, they were pretty open with all of us witnesses that it was open and shut. Like, it was going to be hard to prove they didn't do it. Mm -hmm. I have a question for both of you, uh -oh. and then I'll give you my opinion <laughs> after. Not guilty. Uh, who do you think killed the brother? Oh, dude, I was, yeah, I've been waiting to get to that. Because neither of them, to this day, will claim full responsibility for it. Well, and that's so tough, right? Because they talk about how she was definitely holding him. And they, 
they both kind of admit that she tried to strangle him and it didn't work. Like even yeah, she kind of admits say, that. Yeah, even she admits that she tried to put her arm around his neck and he, it wasn't working because he dug his nails into her. Yeah, arm or whatever. But what do you guys think? Oh, dude, I I've struggled with this so much. I, don't know. I still struggle with who did what at that point. I I lean towards that it was probably Jeremy. I get the sense that after he killed Mark and Deborah. And they're, this is such an awful word, but they're dealing with the little brother, like what to do. I think at that point, I think it's, I think it's Jeremy that took over. I think that's when Jeremy might have realized at that point that J.R. Jasmine maybe wasn't quite capable of murdering her brother. So I think if I was to guess, and this is just me guessing based off of reading the book like one and a half times what I understand of these people's psychology to be is that JR maybe tried to initiate murdering her brother, but I think it was Jeremy that stepped in and actually committed the murder. And that's what I think. Okay. So, but he would have had to have taken the knife from her, right? Cause they both had a weapon and she said she had one in her room because she was cutting. Right. So she said she had gotten that one. And he, I think he took a knife with him and then she tried to wash blood off of one and left it by the sink, which they said also did have some of her blood on it, which kind of substantiated her story of like, she had it in her room from cutting, right? So it's, I, it's, I've always struggled with it because if I remember correctly, it was that knife that had been used on Jordan, the little brother. So Jacob, Jacob, sorry. Yes. Um, so he would have had to take the knife from her to do that. Or maybe she had set it down while she's trying to strangle him. I don't know. But I think I... Fuck, dude. I struggled with this so hard. And even the authors are like, the saddest part is that we'll never know exactly what happened there. I, If I had to say, I think I probably agree with Jonah. But... It's not, I'm not very firm on it. I think it for sure could be either one, especially with, if there hadn't been the fact that she mentioned the sound. Oh, she was definitely in the bedroom. You know, like, yeah. but that's and, the thing yeah. is like, cause like you said, you kind of figure that she didn't have it in her, but I also, I, I kind of feel like if that was the case, she would have been more distraught about the fact that it happened, you know, and she was so nonchalant about it afterwards. I think it was Probably Jeremy, because it does take quite a bit of force to slit someone's throat. That's where I always got hung up on. Once I found out that his throat was slit, I just think even myself to hold down a child to the point where I could get a grip to harm him that horribly and like ear to ear like they talk... I don't think that she, A, she has the weight to hold him in a position to get to position him to harm him like that and then while he's wiggling around have the arm strength to actually cause the wound and that's yeah. what's and like i always wanted to be like maybe she did maybe she did do him in the end but like the more i think about the severity of the cut on the neck and like if it was that big like he was held in a position to do that mm -hmm. is like that's not i took a good swing in the air and maybe 
got him good. Yeah. You know, like that would be a stab or like half the neck. Well, and they mentioned she did stab him once and it's kind of a superficial wound, right? Yeah. Like it's not a very it wasn't deep one wound. one that would have caused him to die. Yeah. I think she might have tried and realized that, you know, she's not like physically capable or. Because she wasn't that heavy. Yeah. Like, that's what makes me think that she would be unable to hold him down in a full fight for his death because like they're in size children of that age aren't a whole lot bigger than each other mm. you know like it's maybe 40 pounds difference but 40 pounds wiggling around for the for its life weighs as much as she does like it's getting out it's gonna yeah. run around it's probably why there was so much blood around the room too but that is the only thing that's ever made me have doubts is that if she were to have performed that cut she would also wouldn't have had the weight to keep him in one spot very long. So him running all around the room oh, after the yeah. after the thing. Right. I would think if Jeremy had done it, he's only getting weaker from the time the injury was caused mm. that there should have been a large amount of blood in one direction or in one area because he should have had the strength after beating a guy that was 200 pounds heavier than him. Yeah, yeah. The adrenaline should have been able to keep the kid in one spot. It's That's the only thing that leaves it up in the air for me is that if he had been injured and was spraying blood all around, she wouldn't have been able to stop him from moving around. Yeah, now he's yeah. all wet too. You're in shock. There's a lot going on there. But I do feel like if that was the occurrence that she did it, he Jeremy would have been preventing him from leaving his room mm. in the doorway or whatever it may have been. But I, it, I just, from understanding the wound and seeing the pictures in court, that that was a heavier guy than her, her that caused that. Right. Cause from court, it like, as I said, it was like almost, it looked as if somebody had done an execution style slit of the throat that just, even me at 16, when that ha I couldn't have held him down and did that. Mm -hmm. I would have needed to be power, more power than she had. So I do lean that he at least caused the wound on the neck. Right. But she was like right there. Yeah. Like I have no doubt that she was completely involved in it or as she said, like started it and maybe he had to come finish it. But I... There is things about it that leave it up in the air. And mm. he was so quick to admit about everything else he did. Why wouldn't he just admit that he... You're already going to jail forever. Yeah, because he, yeah, he does very quickly admit to killing the parents. Right? And he's so adamant through the whole time up till now that that was not what he did. So is he just so disconnected from it that he doesn't realize that his wound was the one that killed him and she right. was already doing it first and he stepped in or whatever? But I, I have to lean towards him causing the neck wound based on the strength it would have took, and that was the thing that did kill him. I think the saddest part of the entire book came at this moment, where they mention that the brother grabbed his toy lightsaber in like a childish attempt at defense, dude. Yeah. Like when I read that, I was like. Uh, like it really drives home the idea of how young this victim was and how helpless he was for sure for something that he knew wasn't a real lightsaber, but in his last thoughts, you know, maybe this can defend me. And it, it always takes me as like Jasmine 
talks a lot about how she wasn't totally sure about what was happening mm. and that like maybe it had got out of, out of her hands and Jeremy was now dealing with it on his own. But there had to be, even from the detective's standpoint, a decent length of fight between the father and Jeremy mm-hmm. after the mother had fallen. Maybe it wasn't passed away yet, but had suffered wounds and was no longer part of the battle. There was a substantial fight that occurred where she was upstairs with her brother and how much damage had she inflicted on her brother before Jeremy right, right. was done his own battle? Yeah, because they said, like, uh, you know, like you said, a 200 and some pound man fighting for said, his like, life. Yeah, and they said that it appeared that the death battle had lasted at least a bit of time, yeah. like, before he had fallen on Jeremy and eventually bled out. Yeah, like it covered some ground. Yeah, so was Jasmine already in the effects of harming her brother through that time? Or was she, as she said, just trying to get him to go back to sleep while putting your arm around him and choking him is technically telling him to go back to sleep too. So were you up there harming him for a long time? Yeah. And Jeremy just dealt a blow and you had every intent of killing your brother, but couldn't do it. Yeah. It's at least not while he's awake. Yeah. And like, and what's the thought process behind that? Like she had to know they're still going to kill him because even if you choke him out, like he's still a witness. And she had even said like, she does kind of give herself away a bit, at least in the intent to kill him, because she talks about how some form of twisted sympathy for him when yeah, she that says, he wouldn't be okay without his parents. Yeah, we can't leave him without his parents. And it's like, so you took his life, though? Like, it's almost like she was keeping his best interests in mind in some fucking weird ass way. Like, it, that, that to me kind of shows that, like, despite the fact that she initially tried to choke him out, I believe it was with the intent still of killing him, just maybe not having him awake for it. Yeah, making it easier for her to actually finish the job on her brother or whatever it may have been. So one thing I guess I hadn't really even considered for some reason is that you would have seen the pictures Mm -hmm. of the crime scene. Like, what's... Uh, Oh, fuck. uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I I I was shown very corrupt pictures of some injuries. The, the pictures were said right on them that they were cropped to from a bigger image. Right. Um, I saw, and it was the first time I had like saw stab wounds that I knew that someone I knew had inflicted on someone. And by God, because yeah, it's like, not the same as a show, right? Like, well, I'll, like, fair admission, I got into, like, gory shit when I was younger, and I looked up a bunch of, like, people getting their heads hit by helicopter blades and stuff. So I had seen some fucked up stuff already. Yeah. I was yeah. a little desensitized to it, you know? Weird days of Kazaa and Morpheus, and you're just... Yeah, yeah you faces know, like, of the death and yeah. BMO Pain Olympics shit. and shit. So, like, I had seen a lot of crime scene photos and stuff, but, like, it was different seeing how... Like I, I'm even in. I'm having a hard time thinking of how to explain this. I guess even in crime shows that I watch, where they sh- show some of those stab wounds that people get, this was like literal animal savagery. The way that those stab wounds were inflicted, I guess, like it's just wider and deeper and grosser than anything I'd ever seen, and the amount of 
pooled blood I got to see in photos was massively unnerving. Whoa. Like, you know when you look at a carpet that you might have like out on a cement pad after it rains? That sort of look but deep red <laughs> in all the carpet that it was around. And thankfully, I never did see the pictures of the boys' room. Right. Because I had no information about that at all, so they didn't try to pry me there. Right. But at the beginning, when they were questioning me, and it was way out of what I, I'm sure is police protocol, they were slamming down photos in front of a lot of us young kids trying to get more information and giving us more than they should have as well. But yeah. Damn. And then in court, I did see... A few more crime scene photos, but there was never, they never showed us kids the bodies in any of the photos. They were always either blacked or like whited out and then photocopied over or something. Because you never met Mark and Deborah and Jacob. No, like I said, the only time I had ever even got close to their house, I had to stop like a block before right. and drop her off because no dudes were allowed to even like roll up in front of her house. So I had never even seen who they were. So you took the stand then, yeah? The witness On stand? both trials, yeah. So were JR and Jeremy, respectively, in the courtroom when you took the stand? Yes. So what was that like testifying in a case in front of two people that you knew, obviously one more than the other, yeah. but like implicating them in a murder and they're there like looking at you while you're doing this? So the Jeremy trial was a whole, whole different story. The Jasmine one, I was still 17 at the time and I went with my dad and my dad very much kept me on a profession be a professional be an adult do your job and get the hell out of there it was weird seeing jasmine after that long because she'd been in rehabilitation she gained a lot of weight she looked a whole she'd hit puberty right because mm-hmm. like it was years a couple of years after that we went to trial and that one because i had a lot more information about jeremy they really were just using my story to fit in the pieces of where she was after and it was very focused on the phone call i had with her because it was implicating where she was at that time and for jasmine's story that was the most i really knew i knew a lot more about jeremy the leading up to and after than i did anything about her because even my story for her trial like they they grilled me pretty hard but you had to know they were in the truck and i didn't Mm -hmm. you know so like my story in jasmine's and jasmine's trial was a little less important but it was really important that I had seen her and talked to her on the phone directly after. Um, so I went in. That was two days that I stood on the stand for them because I came in right at the end of the one day. It wasn't like the questioning was really long, but they had to call me back the next day. And that was really short. It was her. The prosecution there was amazing. They like did a really good job of setting us up so she knew what she was going to ask. She had to almost like bang on what they were going to cross-examine me for. I don't know if that was pre-talked about or if she was just a good lawyer, but she basically knew what he was going to ask me and how she wanted me to respond. So that was really good. And then the Jeremy trial was a fucking circus. <laughs> it was a fucking circus. How so? At that time, I was 21. I, had, I was living on my own. I was a, a raging alcoholic, raging alcoholic. So they call me one day when I'm at work and they say, we need to serve you subpoena papers. Where can we? meet you or can you come down to the station and we'll give them to you i was like yeah yeah and then they they tell me in the midst of my alcoholism they're gonna put me in a five-star hotel 
meals, everything paid for. Just find your way down to Calgary. We're going to need you for three days. It's like, okay. Sounds good. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> I, I was like, can I bring people with me? Like, I'm going to be there for three days. The, la- the lady, the prosecution's like, you can bring one person with you. I was like, what about two? She's like, okay, we'll do two. She's like, you got to behave yourself. I was like, okay. So we get, we get to Calgary on the Friday night. I was supposed, or no, on the Sunday night. Cause I was Monday. I was going in for my first day of trial. So I sit down with the prosecution and we run over what's going to be asked in the first day. Pretty chill. And as I'm leaving, she hands me $300 cash. She's like, that's for your meals for the weekend. I was like, I was working at the time. I was like, I have money. And so I took her 300 bucks, got my two friends, promised her I'd be in immaculate shape, ready to take the stand. <laughs> promised yeah. her. I, I wonder like, where this is going. I took my 300 bucks. We went to the, we went to the hotel room, realized this is a suite. They gave us a fucking suite downtown Calgary. I called every friend I knew in Calgary. <laughs> every single friend I knew. And I Says told them, in the title. <laughs> <laughs> and I told them where I was, and, I, and they couldn't fucking believe that that's where I was. And I was like, you can't ask for me at the front. When you get here, I'm going to kick open a door in the back, and you're going to come in through that, and you can come up to the room. You can't go through the lobby. I like, the fucking government is paying for this, guys. Don't let them see you. We threw such a fucking rager that they threw us out of the hotel room at three in the morning. Oh my god, <laughs> dude! Jeremy's lawyer's gonna go back through this podcast and throw. <laughs> she's, fucking she's gonna remember the trauma she went through. So she had to come to the the fucking hotel at three in the morning as they were trying to throw me out and explain to them that I was a witness for the crown prosecutor oh, and that they couldn't throw me out. Holy fuck! Now. There are drunk and high kids all over the lobby now. They won't let us back in the room. Oh, man. And the prosecutor looks at me and goes, are you going to be okay for 8 a.m. tomorrow is the only thing I'm going to ask you. Oh, my God. And your answer depends on if you go home to Red Deer tonight or if you stay in this hotel room once more. And I looked at I was like, are you kidding me? We're just getting started. I'm going to be fine. <laughs> I've been doing this shit for five <laughs> she, years. She looked at the, she looked at the uh, person behind the counter and was like, where is your boss? So they went and got their, their boss would not let us back. He was like, they were smoking. They were throwing things off the balcony. They cannot stay here. I don't care who you are. Proper hotel party. Yeah. So they had to find us a new hotel room for all three of us at three in the morning. (laughs) Holy fuck. So they got us. And then we were like way in the South. They like took us out of downtown. They wanted no more of that. (laughs) They're like, we will be here at 6 a.m. to pick you up. You have to be in good shape. Called all the friends that were now downtown. They made their way out to our other hotel. <laughs> so, so we were a little smarter and stayed a little quieter, and we didn't smoke inside. We only <laughs> smoked on the balcony. And like I responsible think we adults. We ended up in a pretty quiet hotel, and that's the only reason this party kept fucking going. And they so at six a.m. I reek of alcohol. And <laughs> I have not slept. Oh my god! I am pretty fucking stoned when. The prosecutor shows up, and when I open the door, all she says is, are you fucking kidding me? Because there's people everywhere. They're passed out. And I'm wearing a shirt that says, snitches get stitches. (laughs) (laughs) And and I have dyed my hair that night. 
<laughs> it was brown when she saw me the day before. Oh. It's now half bleach blonde and half black. Oh, man. And it's fucking everywhere. And she goes, A, is that how you're coming to court today? And I looked at myself. And went, yep. And she's like, you know how to read. Is what she, she said that to me. And I said, yeah. And she's like, read your shirt out loud to me. And I went, I don't think there's going to be a problem with that. And she's like, that's not what it says. Read it out loud to me. And I said, snitches get stitches. And she's like, are you wearing that to court today? And I said, and what had happened is one of my drunk friends had took a bottle of vodka and dumped it all over my good clothes that night. So I said to her, hold on. I'll go get my good clothes and you tell me if you want me to wear them. So I walked out into the hallway and handed her this bag that just dripping still of vodka. Oh dripping my God. The bottom. I was like, those are my good clothes. Do you want me to wear those or do you want me to wear these? She's like, I guess you're wearing those. It's worse than the contents of the white bag. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a crime she, scene in itself. She puts, and then she puts me in the vehicle and she had to pick up Cam, who was the drug dealer that had sold Jeremy the Oh, coke. Cam Barkley or whatever, yeah. yeah. So me and Cam, Cam had done exactly what I did on the opposite of side of the city that night. <laughs> and she had just finished giving him the lecture on the way to me. This explains what the author wrote about the state of the witnesses For in Jeremy's, Jeremy's trial. Yeah. Absolutely. So me yeah. and Cam are taking turns asking her to pull over on the way to the courtroom to throw up. <laughs> oh, And and Cam is wearing a a button-up shirt that is missing four of the six buttons. Oh, man. So, like, the whole middle part just is, like, flapping open to his gut. And he's got this cowboy hat on that only one side is now still flipped up. Somehow in the night it has come down. So it's, like, a down flip and an up flip. And she's trying to explain to Cam he can't wear the cowboy hat in court. (laughs) And Cam goes, do you want to know why I'm wearing a cowboy hat? And she says, sure. And he takes his hat off. And his friends have shaved like a fryer tuck in his head the night before. <laughs> so she now has a man that is hammered wearing snitches get stitches on his shirt. And Who is her guy, key witness, by the way? Her, yeah, her key witness to the events leading up to and after. And her other key witness is looking like fryer tuck <laughs> with a shirt that it cannot even hardly stay together. Oh, my God. And we get oh, to court fuck. and the guy at the door goes, ma'am, this isn't the police station. It's what she says with us behind her. She goes, these are my witnesses. And the, and the <laughs> guard just, the he's just this big, big, dark guy. And he's just all giant grin. He's like, you're going to have a wonderful day today, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> so they get us oh up into God. the like preparation room. And her and her team of lawyers are sitting there with me and Cam. And me and Cam can hardly fucking think. Like We're like, dude, stop talking to us. Like We need a minute. We're going to throw up again. And she's like, you guys are going on the stand in like five minutes. You realize this is a murder trial? A triple murder trial, by the way. This is a grand (laughs) slam. I just remember I looked at her. I was like, do I have to go on the stand today? And she's like, yeah. I was like, what happens if I swear, throw up, or just stand up and faint? I need to know the answer. It's like straight out of Trailer Park Boys. If I can't smoke and swear, I'm fucked. (laughs) And she's she's like, if you faint, faint. That's fine. She's like, if you're going to have to throw up, you just got to tell us you're going to throw up. We'll get you something to throw up in. Don't swear. Okay. Your majesty. <laughs> Your majesty, yeah. And she, and she like looked at Cam and she's like, Cam, are you going to be okay today? And as Cam goes to answer, he throws up all over the whole table. Whoa. <laughs> and he goes like, he said, I think her name was Cleary. He's like, Mrs. Cleary, 
there's no way I can get up there today. Like I am shaking. I am sweating. I look like a crack addict. I don't want to go up there. So Cam starts writing out his statement for the day and they bring me in. And you think you're good sitting in that room before you're out on the stand. You're like, oh, I'm good. I'm good. You're like sitting there with your other hungover buddy making fun of the lawyers like this is a joke. (laughs) And you get into that room and you hit the biggest cold sweats of your life. And you're like, is this my hangover or am I nervous now? Oh, so I, and like, I couldn't, I didn't know if Jeremy was going to be in the room. They didn't really tell me if he would be there. I assumed, right. I didn't know where the hell he was going to be. And like, I was so hung over that I was like, just do what the lady told me (laughs) stand and sit the fuck down. Try not to puke. And I sat down and the first time I look up, there's Jeremy. And I was like, I didn't think, and my body just compulsively react. And I went, what's up, bud? (laughs) <laughs> right in court I looked in oh, no. and I went, what's up bud and I and I was like oh I looked at the judge and the judge was like no <laughs> no we're gonna swear you in now but we're not gonna do that again <laughs> and so the questioning went fairly good for me they they the the prosecution <laughs> asked the judge and the uh jury to ignore my shirt before we started <laughs> on the first day anyways um, and I just remember the first thing they said well we would ask you to identify if Jeremy's in the room today but it seems like you guys know each other <laughs> and I, the, sec- the second day of questioning was much better I didn't party that night they, they, they definitely told me that if I threw another party I was going to be charged ex- extensively for whatever I did and all the underage drinking and whatever <laughs> that they were overlooking from my first night. So oh, yeah, because you're 17, right? So th- all of this, all these actions Everything. are not only irresponsible, but super illegal. illegal. <laughs> it was oh my God. highly illegal. Everything they were coming upon on my oh, first 24 hours. fucking amazing. The second, the second day, they, they pulled me aside after the first day and they were like, you know, you did a really good job on the stand for everything that led up to it. Like you're doing great. Can we give you money to go and get real clothes and calm down and come back tomorrow and do a good job? And I was like, sure. We partied. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we partied that night again, but I did go and get some nice clothes and I went to bed early and I let them all party. And they told me at the, at the end of the second day when I could go home, they told me that I had blown over $5,000 in damages to hotel rooms. And, <laughs> and that they were never happier to let a witness go home. Wow. <laughs> Holy fuck. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. You really got your money's worth on that one. Yeah. Yeah. I... But okay. So at this point, you're 17 years old, right? Yeah. And wh- you were 15 when all this went down? Yeah. So... And you've already been through Jasmine's trial. Yes. You could, like, you know, right? Like, even earlier in this podcast, you said, like, you gave numerous statements to the police before you got it right. Like, you knew, like, it was muscle memory at this point. It had to have been. Definitely because I was so hungover when I was in court, I was a little, like, fucky on time frames with some things because I was so tired and not thinking and still partially drunk. I swear I was. But most of it, you could ask me in my sleep the questions that they had asked me seven or eight times that mm. they were referring to because they, they weren't trying to implicate me in anything. They knew what had happened at that point that I took the stand. 
so like it wasn't like they were trying to punch holes in my story it was just anywhere where it was a little hazy when i first told it they would kind of come at me for that but i knew it when i went into it but the second time i was like a i hate the dude now jeremy so i think that this is kind of a joke that i have to even go there's obvious evidence that he did it the girl got convicted how the hell is he not gonna so in my drunk alcoholic 17 year old mind i was like this fuck this like <laughs> why do i even need to be here you guys know he did it <laughs> but yeah so it was like most of it was like i could say it in my sleep by then but there was definitely things because i was still a little drunk that i fucked up when i was on the stand <laughs> dude i never thought i would laugh so much talking about a triple homicide trial yeah you know, oh my god i was getting bummed out but like the snitches get stitches shirt just <laughs> it's it's kind of a happy ending to the, so many of my the latter half of this podcast yeah, my friends didn't believe that i did that thank god i had brought friends from red deer with me that got to watch from another room on video me sit there with it because nobody believed me when i told them they were like you can't I was like, when your uh, when your good clothes are covered in vodka, yeah, you can. <laughs> so <laughs> when your good clothes are covered in vodka, <laughs> I got, I got, kind of two final questions for you. I don't, I don't know if Jonah's got any more for you, but um, a, did you keep in touch with anyone from like the Medicine Hat group after all this went down? Either you know, in the two years until the trial or beyond. Um, we, every, I think the easiest way to put till the trial for the first like six months after they were questioning us, all of us kids were really close. And then it was also at that time where you start really growing out of what that 12 to 16 year old angst is and you start right. to go your own ways. So we all grew away from each other. And then it was almost like a crazy, like halfway through school reunion when the first trial came to, because we were all so young that we were getting brought by our parents still. So we all got to like hang out for the first time in like a year and seeing each other. And like, we all weren't really the same people anymore. And then there was another like eight months till Jeremy's. And a few of our group that had met back then went, well, I guess it was eight months before they started letting us know we were going to be called for Jeremy's. It was a little bit, it was a little bit later that it actually started, but a few of us had started being friends again from meeting at that point. But it, when it happened to Jasmine's was a bigger period of time and we had all grown apart. And now I don't talk to any of them, to be honest. Um, I do know of how like, they're doing and stuff but i'm not friends with them a lot of them still have this weird thought that jeremy isn't the worst person in the world even this far down the road with everything that's out and i don't agree with that <laughs> i think he's like yeah. a pedophile murderer as yeah he is, you know so i don't really i don't understand how they've grown up and not caught on to the obviousness of it regardless of how he was when we were all babies and he was still being a creep hanging out with babies. Yeah. You know? So there's, when I look at it now, the people that still regard him in high amounts, I, I, I just have stepped away from. Yeah. Cause as far as the title pedophile goes, one thing we never really touched on that I thought was really significant is that. So the case like they were arrested within 30 hours of the bodies being found. Mm -hmm. 
And in that time frame, Jeremy and JR had sex that night at the friend's house. Yeah. And and then then we're basically in the act of it when, yeah, like he had her pants off when they found them in the truck. Like a little bit incriminating as far as the pedophile part goes. But like, I thought that was really telling as to, you know, any signs of remorse or not, you know, like Mm -hmm. if you're having sex the night that you murdered your family, like, I don't think you should be physically or mentally capable of being turned on at that point. No. In any, you know, sane human being. And I think that said a lot towards, you know, how guilty they were and the fact that they really didn't feel any remorse. And they talked about in the psychological evaluations of JR in years gone by um, that that was one thing that she struggled with was them trying to get her to show remorse. And then Jeremy as well, they say, uh, uh, JR's uncle, so Deborah's brother, actually forgave him in court because he believed that that's what his sister would have wanted. And Jeremy couldn't look up at him. And like when they asked him if he had any final words, he wouldn't say anything. There was no apology. There was no acknowledgement of the forgiveness. It was like he just was just set on what had happened. And that was it, you know. Mm -hmm. And the other question I wanted to ask you is, did you deal with any sort of like media harassment after the trials? Like, Because you obviously would have been a person of interest in this case. Um, because I was still 17, right? the media had to go through my mom or my dad. And because I wasn't living with either of them, it was next to impossible. Right. They couldn't contact me directly. So I didn't deal with too much. Like I said, I did have the people that wrote this book reach out to my mother because that was who they had to go through at the time. And... It had indirectly fucked up my life in the trajectory it was going in. So my mom was a little hesitant to immediately throw me back into it. Right, yeah. Like, I had had to move towns because Leader was so small that there was no way everybody in the town didn't know about it. And my mom and my dad had a conversation with me, and I I was nervous because I was already getting my ass kicked before this happened. (laughs) Yeah. So, like... I didn't want to leave leader. I didn't want to not live with my mom, but my dad lived in Drumheller, which not far enough removed as I found out when I did make that choice and ended up having to even leave that. Um, But media harassment, not so much. And I stayed really, really quiet about it. Like, like I said, this is the first time I like real publicly sat down and gave it any time with anyone. Because to me, like, as much as I know I'm that close to it, I feel like there's so much there that happened that I don't know about. Right. And so much was said between them that I don't, I didn't know, I know about it now. I saw it in court. But that's still not my story to ever tell. Because, like, I don't know what the feelings actually were behind any of those messages. And going back to what you were saying just quickly about the sex after they had committed these murders. I I found it very interesting from my friends that backed up the fact that Jasmine was telling them that she was having sex with a spaced out Jeremy that was very removed from where he was and her right. trying to get his attention, which I always found in my head is maybe there was more... He hit the remorse thing or like just total zone out about emotion while she was still trying to drive it 
and it kind of reinforced the manipulation thing of her. Right. Yeah, she's trying I, to get that control back while yeah, he's pulling away. You know, that she would even say it seemed like he was very not there, and I was trying to make sure he still loved me. He was the only person there for me. Always kind of struck me as like he was hitting the remorse long before she was. Because it seems like if he was spaced out, a he was also coming down off drugs. Fuck yeah, he was. So I'm gonna get, I'm gonna throw that out there that I'm going to say that that could have just been coming down off drugs or still so fucking high you couldn't talk. Yeah. Once all the adrenaline wore off and you just realized how high you were and you couldn't sleep, could have been that. But it feels like maybe he was like there was a quicker route to remorse or at least reconsidering what the fuck happened. Yeah, kind of the reality setting in sooner for him. Yeah. Yeah, and they did mention in the book, actually, that one thing, redeemed isn't the word I want to use, um, certainly not as far as the murders go, but as far as the relationship goes, they talk about when she actually, like, initiated the sexual portion of the relationship, Mm -hmm. that it, it very much came from her end as, like, a she was worried that he was pulling away at some point and she yeah, kind yeah. of initiated that in the conversation as a tool. And it's pretty much how they say it right from her that it had come as a tool. And from all the messages as like, a, I need to make sure like he's still to get his here. Attention. Exactly. And she like throws it out in a message and he even responds almost in an uninterested way. Yeah, like that. It's not that about that. Started the message with sex <clears throat> and <throat> ended it with love. Or the sentence was sex, 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 and love. And yeah. It was like, why sex first? Yeah. So he's still a pedophile. Yeah, that's exactly him. what I was just he's about to say. Pedophile. Yeah. But, <laughs> you know, like me, in some ways, because I, like I said, I didn't see all of their messages. I, that's their story to tell if it ever gets to be told. But I feel like she knew that she could control him through that means and that it would greatly affect what she could get him to do. And knowing that that was something before and after that she was using makes me feel like something in the conversation they had the night of the murders that she used it to drive his emotions to do what he did. There's never, ever going to be proof of that. Mm-hmm. But I feel like because of the, bef- the leading up to how she used it and then how she states herself that he was not in the mood to be having sex and she drove towards it mm-hmm. to get the connection or whatever the hell it might have been. It feels like, I, and I've always had this thought that there was something sexually driven that drove him that far emotionally in the conversation before the events happened. Right. That unless one of them ever talk, <laughs> we'll never know. But I feel like because of how, and like I know that even from mess, what he would just tell me in person, like, oh, you know, like if I do this and this, you know, she'll like might give me a blowjob. That's what she said, or whatever. You know, it was always a manipulation thing with sex. Now, like like we said, still a pedophile. He was an adult. He should have been able to just say no. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, get a girlfriend your own fucking age or yeah. older. <laughs> yeah, one older, then she has a bunch of money and experience, and you don't have to. Do it. <laughs> when he uh, even talks about like. He didn't know her age, but he assumed she was 16, which, like, that's still, still too fucking wrong. young. You're 23, dude. Yeah, like, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see, like, especially in an era where true crime documentaries are, like, the biggest thing right now. They're, like, the number one, right? Um, <clears throat> it'd be interesting to see if we ever see something from this. Like, 
an interview with him in jail or a, probably not an interview with her because of the protection, right? I, I would believe that she's court ordered probably to never publicly speak on it. That would make sense. I would assume on her own safety. Yeah. Or but that there's something legally that when they said, you know, like, here you go. But if you divulge this information, we can't protect you. Yeah. Sort of situation, right? Because who knows what may happen to you. You say you are that person. You live next door to someone that gets paranoid and you end up dead. Like, it could happen to her. Yeah. And like expunging your criminal record is kind of pointless at that point. Yeah, yeah, right? Like, like they're going to say, we didn't go through all this trouble to rehabilitate you and make you literally impossible to find for you to go and tell the next person that you are this person. So I doubt that they would have it from her end. I don't, I know you can go visit Jeremy. I've been on his visitor list since he got to Spy Hill shortly before his court. That's where he still is. And I could go visit him. I just as as much as I've grown, I don't need to take that many steps Back yeah, no doubt. And like, what are you going to get from it? And like, what, what, what am I going to say? You're a pedophile. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a waste of my day and paperwork to go in there and be like, dude, you've been a pedophile to me for the better part of my life. And I hope you rotten here. You know, there's no point. Yeah. And if I'm I sure ever, he's hearing it in you know, person. Somehow received a letter from him and he said, come see me. I want to tell my story. Fucking on my way. But only under that circumstance right. where I want to talk to him. If that ever happens, we're definitely doing a second episode. One hundred percent. But like, I've even like knowing that I'm on it because you get a letter once a year. If and like because I'm registered and do my taxes and all that shit, Canada knows where I am, and he can send it out just by name, and they'll find the address that he needs for the people once a year. He can send out who's on his contact and visit list. And I get a letter once a year saying I'm on it, but I haven't went. Oh, so he's like by choice left you on that list. He writes it every year and every year my name has stayed on it. So weird. I wonder who has gone to visit him. Cause I they mentioned the one girl in the book. They mentioned uh, Morgan. Uh, has moved, she lives in Calgary now. And I, 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 like I said, I know a lot. I've, I'm aware of what a lot of those people are doing, but I don't know personally. So you think she know. still wants to marry him? I wouldn't know. She's not quite the same person she was even when that book was written now. I right. know she's still like not like a married person or anything right now, but she's not the same person she was even when that book came out, from what I can tell. So I don't know. I'm probably quite a bit different now. Fucking crazy, dude. There was so much in this that just left me questioning psychology and shit, you know? Like, and again, like of people that age, like you take psychology is hard enough when you're looking into people of that age. And then when you add in this sort of trauma and how people react to it, because all kinds of people react to trauma so differently, right? People break down, people freeze, some people laugh, you know, some people get super nervous. And like you add that into this scenario with these kids and it's like, man, like I would love to know a ton of studies on this from like a professional. Cause like all I can do is speculate and like give my opinion, which is 100% 100% based on my own experiences at that age, you know, yep. but like, I can't wrap my head around it. This book left me with so many questions. And like I said, in the beginning, it really wasn't until I got to the court portion that I decided to not throw this fucking book in the fire. And as I said on my Instagram post, like I despise the history of book burning. I've never, I've always thought that like history is history and we need to keep it, you know, like whether we like it or not. But this book just like left me with a feeling that I was like, maybe 
the symbolism, you know, of, of burning the book and you see it in, in therapy and stuff. A lot of times they'll tell people to like write a journal of all of your negative thoughts and then burn it Mm -hmm. as like a symbolism of, of getting rid of it. And like, part of me was like, dude, I kind of just want to do that and cleanse myself of this whole fucking thing. But then once I got into the court portion, I was like, and the, the legalities of it all. And, you know, like they gave her the maximum sentence, but it was a maximum of 10 years with time served and it couldn't all be prison, right? Like she had to go to like a halfway house of sorts after I think it was six years. Yeah. And so she's, and where she could get supervised like journeys out into the world. Well, and, it's a little misconstrued. The like, cause when they, when they say that like she was getting supervised journeys out into the world, she stayed on a psychiatric campus 98%. Right. There was 2% that they decided eventually that it would be dangerous to put her back out into the world without reassociating her to the world. Yeah. So the actual time she spent away from the place by herself was 2%. Hmm. She was out in public and going to Mount Royal. There was a person sitting beside her as <laughs> through all of that. When she was in class learning, there was a guy with a taser, a gun, and a nightstick sitting beside her. Like so, even her freedom was oh. not freedom. I couldn't imagine that dude's like, a cheap finger. Imagine going through your teen years and knowing if you lashed out, you're probably going to get tased. That's the life that she was living, and that's why they had to give her that two percent before they let her back out because she was like an animal. Yeah, you were around kids that you saw this freedom, but you do one thing that just your hormones are going to make you do. You might get tased and thrown in a room, and especially for somebody who this whole thing came from her distaste for authority right distaste for people's control over like really that's that's how it all came about is like she couldn't go see jeremy and she couldn't hang out with her friends which as far as i'm concerned from the parents standpoint everything they did was entirely justified oh yeah they didn't do anything wrong. they handled it very well and i thought it was almost like too understanding like oh i know parents that would have been like you get nothing until you stop talking to these older men and for sure stay in your room until an indefinite time there would have wouldn't have been no Oh, you're doing better here. Have some things back. Like there's parents out there that are way, way rougher than the way she was treated. And that was part of my difficulty with the book is because we don't have the parents perspective, obviously, because they're, they've been murdered. So I, even when I was rereading portions of this book and thinking of the story, I was like, what are these journalists? What are these authors not giving us intent? Like what sort of biases, how, how are these parents being painted a certain way? So, because uh, for me, I just wanted there to be another explanation. I, I wanted there to be something horrendous that happened that would explain the way JR was. Something right? to make it make sense. Exactly. I was like, well, okay, where's the sexual abuse? Where's the physical abuse? Where's There's got to be something in here that we just don't know about, right? And so that's the struggle is like, no, it's just actually an awful story. Good people died. Yeah. They did everything that they could to raise a family, right? And they died. And it's like, there's nothing that you can point to. It's like, well, you know, maybe it's like, well, maybe not nothing. They were just good people that died. Well, and especially one point that I got really stuck on that I read a bunch of times when I got to it. And I like, I kind of like it added like probably an extra 10 hours to my reading of the book because I did the same thing as Jonah. Like once I got into it, I pretty much just powered through it. You kind of like it transports you to another world. But when they're talking about the murders and 
as the fight is kind of leaving Mark, you know, he's kind of succumbed to the idea that he's dying. You know, he asks Jeremy, like, why are you doing this? And Jeremy says to Mark, because this is what your daughter wanted. And like, <laughs> that's your, your final moments of life are someone telling you, someone who you don't know at all, yeah. who's like entirely masked. You've, they've murdered your wife and you're fighting for your family's life. Like, and she had snuck out kind of, right? Or she snuck him in. So in his head, he's fighting to protect her, like his yeah, kids. Well. Yeah. yeah. And then one of the last things he hears is that it's what she wanted. And like, I couldn't imagine like just the spiral he would be in as, as life faded on. away. You'd yeah. just be so lost. Like the questions you would have, like it would torment you if there's some sort of afterlife, it would torment you for eternity, mm. not having an answer to that and being like, what do you fucking mean? Yeah. Like, we grounded her because she was being a fucking maniac, and now we're being murdered oh, for murdered. it. Yeah. yeah, like they did. Like, like we said, you know. And as Jonah was saying, like, you wonder if it is kind of misconstrued by the community because we see it all the time. You see it with musicians, like musicians get famous after they die and stuff, and people never speak ill of people after they're dead. Suddenly, they're a saint. We see it with criminals that die. You know, oh, they were such a good person, and all. It's like we see it all the time. I don't think that's the case with this, but like. You have these these people that were murdered that were did everything from what I can see they did everything right as parents. You know, they tried their hardest to get her in line. They understood like she was wearing shirts with like satanic symbols on it to school, being a self-proclaimed Wiccan, of course, which they talk in the book that, you know, the Wiccan community doesn't align at all with her ideas. But like they, I think they handled it really well. And like my parents went through a similar struggle, man. Like I said, I'm wearing cradle of filth shit to school and like this naked girl in a bathtub of blood. And I got this crazy fucking black hoodie on with pins in it everywhere and shit, like showing all the signs of a troubled child, you know? And my parents are like doing the same thing. Like how, like how do we punish you for acting out without feeding this rebelliousness? That's like, I'm sticking it to the man, you know? And like, we, like we want you to see this punishment as our care for you. And not as a punishment. You know, we don't want you to look at us as more of an authority figure. Well, and I think, like, it's important to remember, like, when you hear about her parents taking away, like, phone and computer privileges, what time this was in. Her having her own computer in her room is fucking mind-blowing for that time anyways. Most households had, like, one computer in the house. Oh, yeah. That everybody had to share. Yep. So, like, when they say things like that, you have to remember the time this happened. Taking her computer from her, like... That's a privilege that most kids didn't have. To be. They talk about how Jeremy had a computer but no internet and had to go to the library. Yeah. Like, the things they were taking away from her are because your parents had been such good parents to provide those things for her even before they took them away. Yeah, we all so know the hard. struggle of trying to get porn from LimeWire on the family computer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, right? Yeah. So, like, when you, they talk about the things they were taking away from her, I, I come from a family where we didn't have money. This is the one I, like, even hearing the kid that time have their own computer, I'm like, son of a bitch. You know, and, like, her not... Parents saying, don't hang out with older guys as you're a younger girl coming into puberty... That's going to happen with every child. Mm-hmm. No matter what child you are and what your parents are, that is going to be something they tell you. Like, that wasn't out of line. Them going with her to therapy and when she showed improvement, rewarding her. These weren't terrible parents. They were doing exactly what parents would do to any child in the situation. 
on the lenient end, if you ask me, you know, like, yeah, 100%. Like if I was a girl and was 12 and my dad had caught me making out with a 23 year old, my dad would be in jail for killing the 23 year old. For sure. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. I I think they were very lenient on how they dealt with it. And as far as it shows, even from Jasmine herself, there was never anything that they did to her personally, like physically or like really bad. No, they say that a few times in the book, like there was no evidence of physical abuse. Yeah. There was nothing. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it's almost, again, it's so hard to pick words for this. It's almost funny in a way, I guess that like they're trying to keep her from him because they're thinking the same thing we would all think, you know, like this guy's a fucking predator. You know, like the, it's an older guy going for a younger girl so he can manipulate her. In reality, it should have been Jacqueline May, Jeremy's mother, keeping him from her because she was the one pulling the fucking strings as far as all the evidence shows. And it's like they're trying to keep her safe from him when really the whole thing was backwards. Yes. It's fucking wild, man. And like as someone that's like I essentially have a stepdaughter now, you know, She's eight, like she's not quite at this age where things starts to get fucking super sideways, <laughs> you know. But reading it's this coming. book, I was like, dude, what? Because like, I, dude, I have no fucking experience raising a kid. This whole thing has been like a bit of a nightmare for me in the sense that I'm like realizing that like I would consider myself a pretty responsible adult, but responsible adult and parent are two fucking totally different categories, oh, dude. Yeah. So okay. I'm like, dude, what do I do? And especially you read a book like this where they're like, I would say they did everything right, as we had said, almost even too lenient. And I'm like, it fucking all went south. Like, what the fuck do I do if things start getting to a stage? Most kids, especially early teens, right, getting rebelliousness, and the, like the the resentment for authority figures. It's going to fucking happen. I did the same shit, man. I snuck out and I wore shit to school that I shouldn't wear pretty much just because I shouldn't wear it to school. You know, it's the don't touch the stove thing, yeah. you know? And I'm like, fuck, man. I like try to look ahead at my future and I'm like, what the fuck is the right thing to do? You know, like it's fucking terrifying. Hopefully I'm not a Mark and Deborah story, but, (laughs) but it's like, you just think about it. You're like, man, sometimes even, even if you're doing the right thing, like sometimes it's out of your hands, you know, like you can do what's best, you know, by all means of the term. And you just can't make all the choices. You can't control it. It's, it's going to go how it's going to go sometimes almost. Yeah. So, Joan, I don't know if you have any more questions for Mitch here. I think we've covered quite a bit. We got far more than I was expecting. Uh, I don't have any questions. I just want to just like thank you for your honesty today. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, this was fucking wild. Far more laughter than I had thought we would have. So that well, was pretty I knew, cool. We got I knew a good it was balance. a heavy topic, so I was trying to come into it as light as I could. And it's funny, so we're actually recording an episode of your podcast after this. Um, and like we had said when we got out here, because we're out at the cabin right now, and we'd said when we got out here, we're like, which one should we record first? And we had kind of agreed as a group, like, let's get the heavy one out of the way so we can do something fun after. And like, yet this just turned out to be like, we like heavy in the beginning. And then the whole fucking court portion was just so entertaining, man. <laughs> like that shit was so good. You could make that alone a movie. Oh, yes. I knew when I was hoping that we would get into the core thing. I wasn't going to say it if we didn't get into it. I didn't know if you wanted to get the lightheartedness. In oh, the my God. Of, you know, something so serious. <laughs> but everybody that I've told from old guys to like 
kids younger than me thought that that was pretty hilarious that I took the stand in a stitches get stitches, snitches get stitches shirt. I'm but. probably going to clip a section of that out and use it as like promo <laughs> That's okay. on the Instagram page. Just because like, I know there'll be a lot of people when they see this topic, like my girlfriend does like some true crime stuff, some scary stuff, but like when I talked to her about this book, there was zero fucking interest in reading it. She's like hard pass. Like, especially she gets very affected by things. Right. So like this, this would be something that would really, especially having a daughter herself, you know, it's something that would really stick with her and linger around. And so like a lot of people would kind of see what this book is about and be like, maybe that's an episode I'm going to veer away from. And so like having this portion in there, we're like, look, this shit also gets funny as fuck. And maybe it's like, not everyone's humor <laughs> like well no but and like i think it, it the humor sits nice because it isn't directly related to what they did yeah you know like it, it was something that i decided to take on myself and make a circus out of something yeah i certainly don't feel bad about yeah, any of our so, jokes you know it's more about what i did about the situation oh my god and especially like to anyone that has read the book at this point if they're listening to it like they're going to think what we thought where it's like, Oh my God, everything they said about the w- Jeremy witnesses are, it, it just makes so much fucking sense. Yeah, now. And like When I read the book initially, I was like, I wonder if it, what I did made it into this book. I wish they mentioned your shirt. Oh <laughs> and, my God. That would have been the then best. And when I got through, when I got to the book and the first time it said like, Jeremy's side on the other hand was a bunch of alcohol. I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> I was like, that's a like straight uh, shot at me and Cam. Man. Yeah. Picked us, there was no other problem people in Jeremy's trial but me and Cam, who threw parties on separate sides of the cities the night before the trial. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Oh, paid man. for by the crown prosecutor so <laughs> anybody that was with me on those nights you can thank the crown prosecution of yeah. alberta for our parties that god we- bless <laughs> the government man <laughs> for and, finally and getting- to the ramada downtown thanks for throwing us all out at three in the morning we all had to take cabs across the city to continue partying once the crown got us a new hotel dude that's like a medal of honor though like you threw a party so hard that not even the police could talk the fucking hotel into letting you <laughs> above stay. the police we were crown prosecutor was yeah. literally talking to the the manager of the hotel and said there's no fucking way i'm letting them back up there i won't even <laughs> let them get their clothes you have to go get their clothes <laughs> oh my god man while there was a good 50 people that were like sitting with all their open alcohol in the lobby waiting to figure out what the hell we were gonna do it's so funny to imagine too like from a, like everyone on the legal team standpoint like they must have been like this fucking trial dude like holy fuck and then they're well, dealing with this on top her, of told it. Told me and Cam straight up. She's like, "This is this could be the trial of my career, and putting you two on there is the <laughs> thing that might ruin it for me." <laughs> and us being young kids are like, "Whatever, your career sucks." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, screw the law. I don't know. Oh, but fuck, yeah, she man. had told us very clearly this could be the like trial of my career, and putting you two on the stand may be the thing that prevents it from being that. <laughs> oh fuck, man. Well. Thanks again for being on here. This was awesome. I had way more fun with this than I had expected it was going to be. I thought it was going to be super heavy and this has been a blast. And also like, I thank you for not telling me ahead of time, like the role you played in this Mm -hmm. and like how, just how close you were to it because you hear it all the time with like a crazy story. Like people want to be close. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like a large event like this almost has a gravitational pull and people just get caught in the orbit and they're like, Oh, I like met that person one time or whatever. And I had no idea what we were going to get. And like, I came out here kind of wondering like, well, we'll see how this goes. Like how much more are we going to get than the book gave us? And like, dude, this fucking far exceeded my expectations. I'm glad. I'm glad. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks again. Yeah. I'm glad that I was a good guest for you guys. 
I have never had a conversation like that in my entire life. I was so unprepared for the content of our conversation with Mitch. I'm still processing all of that information. 100%. Especially when he dropped the bomb, I guess, so to speak, with his actual connection to it. Because neither of us knew that from the start. We went into it basically blind, just knowing that he had some connection to it and no idea what it was. In that moment, my brain was just, you know, running at red wine with questions to ask him. And I still, I feel like I could still come up with so many more. And yet I don't really want to dive back into the theme again. One thing that I appreciate about our conversation with Mitch is that I get the sense that, and you can tell just in the way that in the language that he uses and the phrases that he uses when he's talking about specific events around the Richardson family murders is that he's been processing this for a long time. It's helpful for me to see somebody that has seen what he's seen and has gone through what he's gone through with both trials and having such a close connection to the murders and all the things that happened in Runaway Devil. It's helpful. Like It, it certainly doesn't make reading this book any easier, but I, for me, because this book is so close to home and we've been so fortunate to have a guest like Mitch, it makes it a little bit easier. I'm sure we can't say enough how much we appreciate Mitch coming on. That really shines a new light on this whole story, and it's nice that it's the first time in this podcast that we're able to add more than just our own opinions of the book, really. Largely, it's it's just us having a conversation as two readers, and this time we're able to provide so much more depth to it and and even extend the story a little longer because one thing I think about a lot with any of these books is, and we've talked about it multiple times with different characters, like, what about these other characters? What happened with them? You remember Alberto in Motorcycle Diaries in Season 1? We always wondered, like, what's his life like now? And what's the the ripple in the pond, so to speak, from these events? And with, with this conversation, we got to add all of that depth that people might be looking for after reading this. So with that said, how do you want to rate Runaway Devil? Previously, our, our Octane ratings have always been on the book, right? Content, quality. With this one, it's hard not to include this conversation you know it's I've been really focusing on separating myself and also like we said in the intro it's you can't really add any opinion it's largely a list of facts but I would say I want to give this book a 91 for sure I want to give it a high rating because I think the journalism done behind the scenes on this was fantastic. You know, there's a quote from Danny Filth from Cradle of Filth in here regarding the murders. There's so much backstory. They clearly pursued information from everyone involved. Um, As Mitch said, you know, they were reaching out to him, and he mentions in the interview that considering his age, they would have to go through his parents. So gathering this information would be extremely difficult, and you can tell that they really did the legwork to get it there. And I don't envy them for writing this story either. Like, it would have consumed a large period of your life gathering all this information, putting it into a book, and publishing it. And I mean, just in the time we've spent reading this and then doing the podcast, 
I feel like it weighs on me. So to make this like a significant task in your life would have been very heavy. And I think they did a really good job of keeping their own opinion out of it, giving us the story, because as they said in the book, like it impacted the community very heavily. And, you know, between the Wiccan community and the goth community, there was a lot of ridicule. So you very well could have written this book with a lot of that hatred put into it, you know, looking down upon these communities for because of a couple people within it. And I think they did a great job of avoiding that, you know, not adding any emotion to it. It's just, this is the information we have. This is what played out. And these are all the facts that we can give you. And I think it could have been done entirely worse. And I think they, I think they nailed it, to be honest with you. I agree. And my rating is your rating. I'm, I'm giving this book, Runaway Devil, a 91 as well. And just to speak to the conversation that we just had with Mitch, I'm not going to ever be able to separate knowing Mitch and hearing what he had to say about these murders and the people that he knew and the content of this book. Like for me, th those are, those are all together under, under the same dome, so to speak. There's, there's no way that I could objectively say that I'm just, when I'm, when I'm talking about the book, like this is my rating, like it's all included now, right? It's, it's kind of one and the same thing. And I, and I don't want to do that to keep Mitch, you know, with that story. Uh, cause he's certainly, he's his own person. He has his own life. He's very much an individual that has separated himself from these events, from what I gather, uh, in our conversation with him. But for me, like this rating, I'm giving it a 91 and that's including everything. I'm mostly not giving it a 94 because I don't think that this is a book that everyone should run out and buy. This is not something that you should think of as something that you can just sort of passively read. I think if you do decide and, you know, I hope that you take into consideration that everything that you've heard in this episode thus far, if you do decide to read this book, like don't buy this book and read it with, especially if you live in Alberta and if, especially if you have any sort of connection, whether big or small to the events, whether you're like, you know, somebody in medicine hat or in Southern Alberta, or if you're our age and, and you can relate to some of these kids back in, in 2006 and whatnot, don't read this book with a light heart because it's this one affected us. It's a lot to chew on for sure. And I think if you're going to dive into this, you almost need to give enough respect to the story, right? Like you can't, like you said, this isn't a passing glance. This is something that you've really got to sit down and chew on. And I think if you try to read it at a passing glance, it's going to chew on you. You know, like I wasn't expecting this at all, especially, and I just want to say, especially knowing Mitch, because I didn't know anything about this story previously. I didn't know Mitch's connection to this. And he's just one of the, like, cheeriest, motivational dudes that I know. Like, just always hyping everyone up. Just such a positive guy. And it was it was shocking to hear that he has this connection to this, this story in his past. Because I know people that have been absolutely wrecked by much less, you know? So it was really cool having that personal connection with him and then hearing this part of his past and, and just seeing how he's come through it. And even on the drive back, because we did it out at the cabin, he was still like, it wasn't uh, withdrawn or anything, you know? You can tell he's put in the work and he accepts this as part of his past and he doesn't 
it doesn't let it become him, you know? Like, so again, just super appreciative for Mitch coming on and sharing this information and, and just pumped to see that someone could have, you know, had this darkness as a part of their life in their mid teens and just become such an awesome dude afterwards. So with the next book, we are going into like a different part of the world and we're getting as far as away as we can from Medicine Hat uh, with this next book that we're reading. The next book we're reading is called Red Notice, a true story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice, uh, written by Bill Browder. So this is kind of another recent time story, right? Obviously, we have much less connection to this. Um, But yeah, just also a very overwhelming story in high finance over in Russia. And it was a lot to grab onto. It's out of my wheelhouse for sure, but I found... I dove into it pretty well, and uh, it was a lot easier to understand than I expected for something that, you know, high finance is not my world, and it was a it was a well-written book. It was a great story. You know, it's definitely something that could be made into a movie, and it, it changed international politics, really, this, this story. So it's a good one. If you, if you have any interest in, you know, high finance at all, R- Russian history even, and even just like it's almost like a spy thriller accidentally. Yeah. And I think that's, those are some things that we'll sort of get in into the episode. I remember reading this book. I just, after I would take breaks from it, you know, after finishing the chapter, I just like, <laughs> I'd like open up a finance app and just like look at stock prices. Cause that's just how much <laughs> like the, the themes about finance sort of influenced my own thinking, right? I'm like, oh man, I just, I want to, I want to get into this more than I already am. Right. Just in North America. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't need to go to Russia. Yeah. Leave me out of this Putin. So as always, thanks for joining us. This one's been a, a real adventure and I want to say, I think this has been my favorite episode so far, but I say that with mixed emotion. I don't think I would want to go back and do it again, but I feel like we've provided the listeners with much more information than we usually can. And so we hope you guys have enjoyed it and feel free to reach out to us with your thoughts. Uh, We still have so many more questions. If you have other questions, we're happy to not have any answers for you because we can't come up with our own. But it's always nice to know that everyone else's head out there is spinning as well and that you've uh, you've been chewing on this as much as we have. So if you want to find me, uh, just look me up on Instagram. I'm just at Jonah Condro on all one word. You can fire me a message uh, if you want to talk about Runaway Devil, if you want to talk about other books that we've are reviewed and read for this podcast, or if you just want to you know, get a book recommendation that doesn't have anything to do with 12 year olds killing their parents. I've got lots of books that will make (laughs) you feel good and that won't bring you down. I just also want to say, if you made it this far in the episode, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, I just want to say thank you to, to Mitch again for, uh, for sitting down with us and for being honest with this conversation. Cause I think we've set the bar pretty high for ourselves. I don't think that I'll ever be part of a podcast like this ever again. So I think this is sort of one of those like once in a lifetime kind of moments. 100%. If you want to reach out to me, I'm enlightened underscore dirtbag on Instagram, or you can now reach out to us on our podcast specific Instagram page. So it's enlightened dirtbags podcast. We'll be 
posting lots of updates about upcoming episodes. We'll probably pop some behind the scenes stuff in there, giving our thoughts on, like Jonah said, just other books. Maybe we'll have to make a list of happy books to read after this one. <laughs> books that, uh, that are going to fix your day because you might need uh, some post runaway devil therapy. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you on the next one. 